Hello and welcome to Beyond Boundaries. I'm Justin Douglas. So happy you can join me for this episode of Beyond Boundaries. Please consider checking out the Patreon page and supporting the Beyond Boundaries podcast if you're able. That's patreon.com forward slash Beyond Boundaries podcast. You can also help by sharing, subscribing, rating, and reviewing the podcast. It makes a huge difference. Hope you enjoy this episode of Beyond Boundaries. So I'm here with Nate McConkie and Ryan Moran, and we are going to talk about conspiracy theories. Yeah. What's up, guys? How you doing? Hey. Oh, it's been it's been going well considering the whole world's coming undone, but otherwise, <laughs> not too bad. Yeah, Ryan, how are you? Oh, I'm doing great. Like you said, other than the pandemic, I can't complain. <laughs> <laughs> Well, good deal. Um, so we're going to talk about conspiracy theories, and I think it's important to note um, uh, Nate is a doctor. Uh, maybe Nate, you could just give really quickly uh, your uh, qualifications, what you who oh, you are. Uh, okay, so I am. It, it is true. I'm a physician. I'm a couple other things. My career started in cytomolecular biology. That was the first degree I got. I also have a master's degree in public health, and of course, a medical degree as well. Um, I'm board certified in a couple specialties, most notably internal medicine, which is adult medicine and pediatrics. I'm also a pre-hospital physician, and I'm um, working on cardiology and electrophysiology as well. Um, so I can comment a lot of things going on in the world right now from a few different angles. Um, yeah. Most of my practice is in medical practice, taking care of patients. I do some research as well, um, focusing on, among other things, public health, especially in regards to heart disease. And I did have a lot of experience in infectious disease during my grad school program as well. Um, but one thing also worth noting is in terms of my master's degree, I also have a specific interest in health psychology, how people make decisions about their health, how they interpret information. Um, I think that will essentially be one of the most important things I can bring to today's discussion, at least. Yeah, that's great. And Ryan, um, I know you and I have a ton of conversations about the dynamics of like behavior and uh, and I think that's an interesting thing to bring to the table today. So why don't you give people a little bit of your background? Yeah, um, I mean, after that extensive resume there, <laughs> uh, I basically have none of those qualifications. But uh, I have a behavioral health background. I've worked in the field um, of autism for the last 10 years and, uh, and, and definitely learned a lot about the impact of different stimuli on uh, on everyone's behavior and things of that nature. So I like to pontificate, and uh, I've spent recently just many hours consuming different content related to conspiracy theories. So in that regard, I think that makes me the resident. At, no, I'm kidding. Uh, but yeah. no, this should, should should be fun to just kind of uh, talk about this, and and I just plan to offer some of my opinion in regards to some of the conversation. Perfect. There. By the way, we have no roadmap in all of this. I have some like ideas of things that we can talk about, but there's no uh, like we we've got it all planned out. Like so, we're probably gonna have some rabbit trails, um, and we're probably going to uh, you know as usual run down those quite quite far on this podcast. So um, and and as you know, um, uh, with with a conversation like this, we're going to um, likely talk about things that are health related with Nate here. And obviously with many of us have seen or heard of or seen it shared on, on online, like pandemic and that kind of stuff. And, and, and just, I think the reality that whenever we're in crisis, like we are right now, it seems like conspiracy theories find a way to bubble to the surface. So we might even talk about the psychology of that. But before we get started, I think this is a really cool question to kind of consider. 
Can you guys remember the first conspiracy theory you ever heard? Ooh, um, let me think. I, I think for me, it was the moon landing. That was that was definitely a big one. Um, probably the one that I saw most, I, I knew that there were some people who believed weird things like that the earth was flat or something. The very first time I remember a conspiracy theory really gaining traction with a large number of people was after 9-11, some of the conspiracies that it was, you know, an inside job or it was a controlled demolition or something like that. That yeah. was the first one that really seemed to take off in society. There's always been weird stuff in small fringe groups, but that one seemed to get more footing than most did. Mm. What yeah. about you, Ryan? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great question. I can't remember uh, specifically, but I think especially because of the advent of the internet about the same time that 9-11 is one that you know, especially early on, I, I, <laughs> I, I went down a few rabbit holes in regards to that. Uh, I think JFK comes to mind. Mm. Oh, because yeah. Because yeah, there yeah. were some, some movies written about that. And then prior to 9-11, that was, especially my parents' generation, that was the, where were you when this particular event happened? Right, and I remember, right. mm. you know, 9-11 being that for, for myself. Um, so prior to 9-11, I think that would have been the one that, that sticks out in my mind the most. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I, I I'll say this. I definitely went down a lot of rabbit trails with the nine 11, like conspiracy videos, like loose change uh, was one of them not to like advertise for these things. But I think that hit me at a particular time in life when I was young, impressionable. And I also think, and, and this is maybe where we can start dissecting like conspiracy theories. It seems like most conspiracy theories have a couple kernels of truth but then they, they wrap a narrative around those kernels of truth that make the rest of what they say that maybe isn't true, um, but can be packaged as equally true to the other things. Does that make sense? Oh, um, yes. Uh, uh, that, 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 that almost disarm your mechanism for critical thinking and you begin to say, wow, they're right. And wow, that makes sense. And, uh, and it, it's, it's interesting to me that like, for a while, I, I wouldn't, I, I don't know, maybe I did believe there, that 9-11 that was an inside job, but I would say it this way, like, I certainly didn't not believe that. Like, I, I, I wasn't, I wasn't fully in, like, I wasn't going to go wave any flags or like tell everybody about it, but I definitely in my mind was like, there's a lot of questions here. I don't know about this, that, and the other thing. So yeah, I don't know where you guys want to start, but, uh, I'm willing to own my uh, my sheepness, I guess, and ability to be to be uh, confused. Well, so the thing about conspiracy theories is every one of them comes with a motivation behind it. No one just sits down and says, hmm, I think I'll explore this deeper and see what falls out of it. People go in because they're looking for something specifically. And there's many things that people look for, all the things that motivate people, whether it's money or power, influence or recognition. But with exception, one of the things that differentiates a conspiracy theory from real science is that people tend to start with conclusions and then search for evidence, which is the exact opposite of the process that a scientist goes through. And so oftentimes what you find is when dissecting the claims they make or having arguments with these people, you can offer all the evidence that you want. You can go through fact by fact, point by point, dissecting everything that they bring forward. Um, often what you'll find is the goalpost keeps getting moved because ultimately the evidence and the facts weren't really what they were going for in the first place. So I just to start off with that point, one of the ways that you can recognize 
bad science or a conspiracy is that it typically involves a large number of completely disparate data points that all point in the same direction. Um, it can be helpful to use an example for this. So just for fun, because it's topical, I will touch a little bit on something like pandemic. Okay. When people say that, you know, the coronavirus is a fraud because actually it's because of, you know, something in the flu shot, or actually it was directly manufactured in the lab, or actually it was funded by Bill Gates, or actually it's activated by the mask. Like, the only thing all of those have in common is that they're anti-establishment and contrarian. There is no, there's no specific individual who goes around setting 5G masks, Bill Gates, and flu vaccines together to understand coronavirus. So a lot of those things come up in other areas, like when people are hesitant about vaccines, they'll say, oh, maybe vaccines cause autism, or maybe they contain you know, aborted fetus tissue, or maybe they're actually part of a government conspiracy to depopulate the world, or maybe they're actually poisoned with high toxicity metals like aluminum. You'll find that they go all over the board, all pointing in the same direction of, I don't like this thing, or I do like that thing. And so whenever we're dissecting a new conspiracy theory, the first step is, what is the person trying to convince us is true? And what are the motivations for it? Mm. Now, that's how a conspiracy theory gets formed. Those are different mechanics at play than what happens when a person chooses to accept it. The reason why someone may accept a conspiracy theory may have nothing to do with why it was formed in the first place. So to go back to the example of vaccines, we know that Andrew Wakefield, one of the former doctors who postulated that you know, vaccines could cause autism, we know that he was actually working on a specific alternative vaccine to MMR that he was financially incentivized to get people afraid of the MMR vaccine. And ultimately it was found that he falsified his data, he lost his medical license and he left the UK in disgrace. So his reasons for forming the conspiracy were essentially money. However, a parent may buy into this sort of theory if they don't like the idea of having their child injected with a medicine and watch them cry. Like there's, there's nothing worse for a parent than watching your child in pain. So for them, getting on board with the anti-vaccine movement is I don't have to do something where I watch my child get hurt, even if they may end up getting more hurt down the future, but that's, that's a whole separate discussion. So people, even within the same camp of a certain conspiracy theory, may have very different reasons for being there, which could be one of the reasons why we do see some disagreement in those groups, even in the echo chambers of the internet people who come to these groups for different reasons may disagree on what points are the essentials that they have to defend and what things perhaps even they're less convinced of. And so instead of taking the perspective of what are the scientific facts and what's the information we know as to why this is false, which never convinces anyone, we have to look at why are these people running to these things and how can we offer them the thing that they're looking for without wrapping it in a package of lies. And the only yeah. time I've ever had success with patients in clinic is when I've taken that approach. Yeah. Okay. So I heard you say a couple of things there that I want to know if you, you believe this. I, I think the reason people believe in conspiracy theories and we can, there's obviously a variety of reasons, but one of the main things, and I think you touched on it is a desire to have an explanation and to have control. Yes. Like, like, and I think that need for an explanation um, tempers their fear or at least gives them something that makes it easy to understand. Like, it's hard to maybe understand all the conversation that's out there with, you know, anything, but even currently right now with coronavirus, there's a lot of information and a lot of misinformation. And so it's a lot easier to believe a conspiracy right now that's telling you everything to believe, I think, mm -hmm. than to kind of wait for the data when you have doctors saying, hey, we're still doing studies, we're still trying to figure this virus out and in and, and all in detail, you know, um, so if you're if you're waiting for that explanation, or you have this person over here that has all the explanations, 
it can be easier maybe to go that direction, especially because you're desiring something to hold on to, some amount of control amid mm-hmm. your fear and panic and anxiety. Um, do you think there's? Do you think that's one of the main reasons people buy into all kinds of conspiracy theories? I absolutely think so. And and just to point out that right now with coronavirus, there is a bit of a waiting game. There is a lot of information we still don't have. But even when that information rolls in, it still won't be accessible to everyone. Unless you understand the microbiology behind the virus, even if we answered all the questions that a scientist could have, it may not do anything to reassure people who are unfamiliar with that field. And so, you know, for me, it's very comforting to know that coronavirus is an enveloped positive sense RNA virus that does not express any enzymes like reverse transcriptase for integration to the host genome. And when I hear all those things, I breathe a sigh of relief. That probably doesn't give most people reassurance because that's not how they're accustomed to measuring the severity of the threat. Um, Mm. Another thing is different people are equipped to deal with different kinds of threats in different ways. And for some people, the idea that what's happening is a problem of government or businessmen or some humans pulling the strings, that's a problem that they're used to dealing with. They're used to voting. They're used to filing complaints against organizations. They're used to changing where they spend their money. It's a very different sort of problem to face than the idea that sometimes, for reasons we don't know, nature just produces a horrifying, potentially fatal disease out of nowhere. That's something that they have no weapons to equip themselves with. And so it's it's more comforting for people to have a familiar problem that they've been seeing before than one that could take them by surprise that they're not equipped to handle. And one of the things that conspiracy theories does is it takes something that's ultimately a problem of nature and science and changes it into problems of politics and sociology, which for some people is a more accessible field. Um, And also it, it, it hits us in a different way. I mean, our brains are designed to deal with people. We don't have an area of our brain that equips us to deal with you know, molecular biology. So there's nothing that instinctually appeals to us about finding those sorts of answers. There's no, there's no drive that gets our heart rate going, that binds us together as a community to discovering, you know, the makeup of the RNA genome of a virus. Like that, that doesn't affect us in the same way as learning that there's a physical enemy made of people that we can fight. Like people's brains like that, that appeals to our minds. Mm. Ryan, why don't you interject here? You got anything? Man, that's some good, good stuff. <laughs> No, there's a lot that I hear. I think that something that struck me um, is just this idea that we're, you know, and and I'm I would say that I fall into this category. Kind of the average individual <laughs> is ill-equipped to really understand like the process of science. I was listening to someone talk about uh, conspiracy theories and you know the reality that what we're taught, you know coming up through the school system in terms of science is really not a good representation of the whole process. Mm -hmm. And so we, you know, and what I hear is we have this desire for certainty. We have this desire for security. And because we're literally daily learning new things about this virus and how it interacts with one another, there's this, this underbelly of, of discomfort. And, and, and most of us aren't okay with that. So we need to find something to anchor ourselves to because you know we're not we're not okay with the process so that's kind of what i hear you saying i just think that's really interesting and these conspiracy theories i think become a way for us to to find something to hold on to even though you know in the end they they are are found to be wanting Mm. definitely so what so really quickly what i hear ryan saying is 
we don't really have, we're not really very equipped to critically think about a number of issues, but certainly issues of science. Mm-hmm. Um, what, I mean, not that we're trying to, I'm not, I'm, we're not done yet. We got a lot more to dissect <laughs> here, but like, what do you see as like the, the thing that helps in that? And, and I want to say this real quick, because I think this is actually where we can have some interesting conversation. I find it fascinating that all the studies right now uh, in conspiracy theories, like is showing that like young people are believing conspiracy theories at a higher rate than like older people. So it's not like you're crazy mom or dad or grandpa or uncle or whatever, you know, it's not like people who are, you know, um, set in their ways and then have a conspiracy theory come along. And certainly that's not saying that older people don't believe in conspiracy theories. It just seems like it's really taking off with millennials um, and and younger people and also very religious people Mm. seem to give into that. And so Mm. like, I, I, you know, when you really look at the metrics, it's really white evangelicals. And so like what has made white evangelicals even more open to this? And then I come back to like, well, white evangelicals have largely discredited science (laughs) for quite some time. So like that opens us up more, but then I'm like, but all the young white evangelicals or most of the young white evangelicals I know aren't really the type who have discredited science. Like that's not really their thing. They're not like the earth was created in seven literal days but yet they still believe in conspiracy theories. And so like some of my thoughts are like, well, maybe that's due to the fact that like our parents' generation didn't have the internet and people, it, people didn't have the ability to just make a documentary without any oversight or without, mm-hmm. you know, like anyone with a camera, with an iPhone can make a documentary today, like, and, and put it together and, and, and put it out and like, and it can go viral. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, it doesn't have to be fact checked to be out there. Right. And, and, and then all it takes is, you know, some famous person with a platform to retweet it. Um, and now you've got traction from a trusted source because that person knows how to put a ball in a hoop. So now we'll go ahead and determine that what they believe about the circumference of the earth must be true. Yeah. Like it's, it's, it's interesting the process, but I'm curious if you think there's any other reasons that like white evangelicals, you know, and ultimately why critical thinking, how we, how we recapture critical thinking. Cause I, I'm interested from a pastor's perspective of like, what's my obligation. So part, part of this is like truth telling, like, and truth telling is really important. And, and I think certainly over the last little bit, that's been a conversation we've been having as a country, even outside of conspiracy theories. Like what, what does fact checking mean? What does telling the truth mean? You know, you've got fake news all over the place. What does all of this mean? And what's the obligation of the church and pastors to championing truth amid people believing in conspiracy theories or fake news? And um, I'm curious how you think we remedy that without, I don't want to be calling out every conspiracy theory every time it happens and I don't think that's my role, but I do want to equip people to like know when there's a conspiracy theory and try to like try to have what they need. What does that look like? Oof, that's a, well, there's a lot to unpack there, but I think one of the big things that people need to have is some some metric for assessing what's what's likelier to be true and what's likelier to be false, based in part on how the information appeals to them and how they're using it to make their decision. And here's what I mean by that. 
if you tell someone, specifically if you tell your congregation, hey, you know, we have maybe even more responsibility than most people to tell the truth because we also make some very exceptional claims and it damages our witness to communicate to people that we have no metric for what's true and false and we can be duped by any old lie that comes along. Like that's not a good look on the church. So I think people are heavily incentivized within Christianity to recognize truth from fiction, but often they're not equipped with the tools to do so. And short of sending them all to medical school or to get PhDs, <laughs> one of the easiest ways for people to have a general rule of thumb for how to assess what's true and what's false is to say, why am I accepting this to be true? And is it the same standard I'm accepting everything else to be true? So for example, when we chose to profess Christianity, we did so over every other religion or atheism, partly because of evidence. I mean, we'd like to say that we have faith, but certainly faith is cheap if we just give it away freely to anyone who comes along. And for some of us, that can be things like um, the presence of manuscripts that corroborate what we're finding today in the Bible, the idea that maybe some people can't actually have personal experiences with God, the idea that some of the roots of other alternative religions you know, give us some pause as to whether or not it may be legitimate based on the historical circumstances from which they arose or from the effects that we're seeing downstream today. Um, for me, I took a more empiric approach and said, hey, here's how it's affected my life specifically in ways that other pursuits of truth didn't give me. Um, and so that being said, if someone were to say, well, I believe this because, uh, you know, we read online, would you say, okay, well, take something that for sure you don't believe. If someone posted that online, would you accept it as easily? If someone posted online that, you know, Jesus was actually a myth and never existed and they made a very convincing YouTube video, would you accept it? And they'd say, no, of course not. And so you might say, well, why is that? What, what's so different about it? Um, whether they'll say it or not, one of the first instinctual things is a priori they've decided, that, no, that doesn't agree with their worldview and so they won't pursue it any further. They don't even need to have seen the video. It's completely hypothetical, it doesn't exist. And yet they've already made an opinion on it. So say, okay, well, let's turn that around. When you saw that video that said fluoride in the water is actually a government conspiracy to control our minds, how did that make you feel? Did it make you feel scared? Did it make you feel vindicated? Did it make you feel confused? For most of the people, it's gonna be one of the first two. It's not usually, oh, that's an interesting idea. Let me look into this because if, if they really looked into it, they'd find out it's probably false. Usually it's appealing to them in some way that makes it um, something they would like to accept because either it confirms their conception of you know, the role of the government and how it's you know, evil and an enemy of the small business that they run, or maybe it can just validate their fears because they're constantly steeped in anxiety and maybe this is the reason why I'm so nervous or maybe this is the why I can't get anything done, not because I, I lack motivation or because I have you know, a mental health issue that I need to seek help with, maybe it's the fluoride in the water. And ultimately the common pitfall everyone falls into is they accept something because they desire for it to be true. And one of the most important things we can teach people, especially within Christianity, is that we need to be intensely suspicious of anything that's presented to us that we want to be true. And you know, I don't think that anyone wanted the fact that coronavirus is a, a, a worldwide pandemic to be true. I mean, certainly people are profiting from it, but no scientist is like, oh, thank God we have, you know, hundreds of thousands of deaths across the world. I mean, that's not something that people were really wishing for, even though some people may characterize us that way. Um, and in fact, we know that people were literally wishing against it when China tried to silence one of the initial physicians who was blowing the whistle for this. So the truth often, one of its hallmarks is it's, it's inconveniently present even when you don't want it to be. And that's in stark contrast to a conspiracy, which is very carefully crafted for people to you know, lovingly embrace it the second that they find it.
I like so, that. So st let's stop there for a second. Cause what I think you just said is really important. So you said the, uh, the difference between a conspiracy and a difficult truth, a difficult truth is kind of there and a conspiracy like is something that's shaped. So, so let me say, let me say, let me throw you a scenario and maybe Ryan can also, you know, jump in too with this scenario in 2012, if I was to say the government is tracking our phones knows our every move and is taking all of our data. And I created some like YouTube video about that. Um, I would have been telling the truth, um, but <laughs> no one knew that at the time. Uh, like, but if I would have known that until, you know, a year later when Snowden leaked everything. The NSA so, yeah. So, well, I say that just to say that like, there are some conspiracies that are, real like there are some things that are happening and that are um so so what makes that different is what i guess i'm saying what makes that particular thing different i do think there's always i think uh, ryan i think you said this when we were talking about this the other day like something like if if it takes more than 10 people to keep it quiet it's not happening or yeah. something what did you say <laughs> something like that yeah i mean i think it's the scope and i think the reality yeah and i think it's good to differentiate between you know, conspiracy theories and something that is a conspiracy. And I think that it, what, what it has to do with the fact that something that, you know, the example you're giving is more focused and more narrow. So the, the broader the scope, if it's global, if it, if it has to involve, you know, any number of people in order for this particular, you know, event to have taken place, then I think, you know, just based on you know, logic, it reduces the likelihood of, of something like that actually occurring. So I think that that is a good, a good thing to differentiate between something, you know, that, that's conspiratorial, is that a word? Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, versus yeah, like, sure. these, these far fetched uh, conspiracy theories, you know, that we're sort of referring to. Yeah. And, and certainly, again, the biggest distinction between conspiracy and truth is truth arises spontaneously, whether you like it or not conspiracies are crafted by people and people craft things for reasons. So the biggest difference between what you're saying, Justin, about all our phones are tracking us and what the pandemic lady is saying is that you're not, one of you is offering a solution that benefits them. So when Andrew Wakefield says vaccines cause autism, he did it because he wanted you to buy his vaccine or he wanted to support the lawyer who's suing mm. the manufacturers of the old vaccine. If you tell me the government is tracking us on our phones, I'd say, okay, what are you gonna do about it? And then you immediately said, but if you buy my special phone tracking prevention tinfoil hat for just $99, you'll be protected. <laughs> right. Then I'm gonna call you on BS. Yeah. But if you're just saying, I don't know, but here's some information suggesting it's true, what do we do about this? That's more the posture of a scientist. Something is happening, now what do we do? It's different than saying something is happening, so you should come to me to fix it with this. And when yeah. it does reach that point, you know, again, obviously there's no magic silver bullet to tell a conspiracy from truth. At some point, you will have to get down to brass tacks and examine individual claims, um, like we did with vaccines. We did some of the most well-controlled and widespread trials in the history of medicine to answer the question, do vaccines cause autism? And the answer is no, not remotely, not even in people who are more susceptible to it. Like, that's probably one of the most well-answered questions in history because it was a big deal if it was true. And so we couldn't just say, oh no, Dr. Wakefield has a conflict of interest, let's ignore him. We took the claim seriously and sometimes that's what it takes to answer these questions. So mm. I wish there was a simple way, but sometimes there isn't, you really have to do the footwork. No, that's good, that's good. I, I, I wanna 
ask Ryan because Ryan, you've had a, a good amount of experience in the evangelical church, white evangelical church. What, why do you think, what are your reasons for why the evangelical church is more susceptible or seems by, by some of the research that's being published, which relevant magazine has a really good article that kind of covers this about conspiracy theories. Why do you, why do you think, um, we seem to be more susceptible. And I say we, even though I've largely given up evangelicalism <laughs> or any hope for its rebirth in a, in a different way. I mean, I, I, I love a lot of the, the original tenets of evangelicalism where it's been the last, you know, little bit I'm not necessarily a fan of. So I don't know that I identify with it, but I'm more curious, like when I say we, I guess, I mean, evangelicals. Yeah. That, I think there's two things that come to mind. The first one is, and this is really for anyone is that oftentimes if it already aligns with your, your tribe and kind of your position, then you're more susceptible to it and you're more uh, likely to, you know, engage in that conversation and, and kind of double down on it. And I think that, you know, at least from my vantage point, some of the conversations and, and different posts I see online, that, that tends to be what it is. If it aligns with someone's already, you know, their presuppositions, then, then they're going to jump on board because that's exactly kind of the, the place that they're coming from. And uh, I think the other part, and this is part of my own journey, you know, theologically within the church, is that there can be, there can be a pushback on, you know, acknowledging what your presuppositions are, right? So the, the things that you come to the table with, and then and then analyzing those so that you can get to a better sense of the truth. And I'm not sure if that's making sense, but I would say that, you know, we make assumptions, for instance, about the authoritative uh, nature of the Bible, right? Um, That, you know, kind of just, you know, this is a bit of a straw man, but that, you know, I was taught as a evangelical fundamentalist, not really, but that basically the Bible just dropped out of heaven, you know, and God handed us this, book that is, you know, perfect from beginning to end, so on and so forth. Well, there's people that actually believe that. I no longer believe that at all. Um, And it began with asking certain questions and then looking into church history and all these different things. So now I have a very, 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 very different view of scripture and its authoritative nature. And the reality is what I do is I generalize you know, what I've learned about that. And I use that to analyze anything else that's making you know, sort of the same claim. So if I read an article or if I hear a perspective from somebody, I'm not saying I do the exact same process, but it's, it's, it's just asking the questions and having kind of that same analytical approach that might not be perfect, but I've, I've learned, you know, we can get to a better sense of truth and reality by asking some of those questions. So I don't know if that, that answers your question, but that's kind of what I think of is people's unwillingness to do that um, kind of, it, 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 it shows itself in some of these conspiracy theories. Does that make sense? No, I agree 100%. And I think, I think you touched on something that is like, when you talk about like the Bible just being handed to us or something like that, like the church doesn't really seem to emphasize, or at least the evangelical church, the church that, you know, Ryan and I have probably most experience with, um, doesn't really seem to emphasize a, critical thinking lens to our faith it actually almost is like 
I, I would even almost say like, it's the, it's almost trying to get you to not think critically about some of the claims that yes. it's making. Does that make sense? Like, so like it doesn't value or place on a high level critical thinking about how the Bible was put together or critical thinking about any number of things, because it could potentially, if you think too critically, you may become one of those people who deny the validity of this. Does, does that make sense? Like I, 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 and, but then I also think pastors set themselves up as trusted sources uh, of, of information, which I mean, I think no matter what, when you have a platform, you're a trusted source. You know what I mean? Like, that's just how it is, whether that's a Twitter, an Instagram, a Facebook, or whether you're a figure, a public figure as, as a pastor. And that's a hard reality because you have a certain amount of responsibility with that. And some people, I don't think see that as a responsibility. Um, like I think of a funny like story, like, so my dad, uh, <laughs> we're driving down the road. I think I'm probably like, I don't know. I must've been five. I must've been in like kindergarten and we're driving down the road and uh, we lived in California at the time. And this is like one of my very few childhood memories that I remember. Um, but we're driving down the road and they have these in California, especially like in the road, they have these rumble strips, not like they do out here in like Pennsylvania area where it's like, you know, they embed the the uh, the concrete, you know, but it's actually like these things, these reflectors that are up because they don't ever have snow plows over there, at least where we were in Southern California. So they can have them so you could see them. And then one time my dad like was veering into the other lane and hit them. And I'm like, Dad, what are those things in the middle of the road for? You know, thinking as a kid, like, I don't understand. We hit those things. I see those things. What are they for? And uh, my dad goes, they're for blind people that drive. And, uh, and, and, and listen, five-year-old wow. Justin, five-year-old Justin said, Oh, that makes sense. <laughs> Moved on. Like I did not oh. in any way import that through like the critical thinking, you know, mechanism of my brain, because for me, my dad's a trusted source. He said it in a way that was not joking. Does that make sense? But my dad planted the best prank bomb in my head because I think I was like seven or eight years old. And wouldn't you know it, we're on the playground with all my friends and we're talking about the rumble strips. And immediately I say, oh, I know what those are for. Those are for blind people that drive. And like, while I was saying it, I was like, no, come back into my mouth words. <laughs> not like, like, and like, and I remember, I remember that moment and being like, and being like, my dad got me that, 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 that's hilarious. You know, even as a, like a seven or eight year old, I remembered like the feeling of shame, but then also the feeling of like, that's hilarious. Um, but I say that to say, like, sometimes I think we can just blindly believe a trusted source. Now, that's a funny story of my dad playing a prank on me. But like, but I guess like, sometimes that's really dangerous. And this is where I go to like, flat earth, for example, which maybe is, I don't know how dangerous that theory is. That's maybe a bad idea when I use the word dangerous, because it's kind of, I don't know, maybe it is dangerous. But like, you have someone like Kyrie Irving, who's a star basketball player, and who says, he believes the earth's flat and you have a lot of people that Kyrie Irving's my favorite basketball player. If he says that it, it must be true. And so like, even just trust I think, I think there's also the fact of like a trusted source furthers the conspiracy theory. Yeah. And it's, it's not wrong for people to defer to a trusted source because we, we cannot possibly analyze the evidence basis for every single thing that we you know, believe or agree with. I mean, we'd never get anything done. And the most convenient and usually the safest heuristic 
is to outsource that job to someone else who does it for, you know, and that's just what they do. Like it's, it's reasonable to defer to, you know, a civil engineer before crossing a bridge instead of saying, well, I'd like to actually see the specifics on this bridge before I drive across it. Like you never get anywhere. Yeah. But I'll, I'll defer to Kyrie Irvin for how to put a ball in a hoop, not for what the, <laughs> what the circumference of. <laughs> right. Right. Like if the structural engineer were to come around and say that, you know, whatever, choose your ridiculous conspiracy theory. We'd yeah. Reject yeah. 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 I hate to keep harping on the medical ones, but obviously that's very close to my heart. So I'll just let that go. <laughs> um, so what do you do? I mean, obviously you weren't wrong to trust your father because if you were going to say like, hey, you know, my blind friend wants to drive. I told him he can do it someday because of these rumble strips. <laughs> he would have probably come clean with you at that point. Like he wouldn't actually let you get hurt or hurt someone else for mm -hmm. believing in him. So even then, even though you, you had mistakenly accepted false information from a trusted source, he did it in a safe way. Agreed? Yeah, I agree. Yeah. It was a, it was a, it was a playful joke. It's hilarious. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, it would be a little the, different if he said, oh, you know, if you click your heels twice and jump off the roof, you can fly. Like, that's child <laughs> endangerment. That's a different sort of dad prank. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I should probably tell my kids I was just joking when I said that. No, oh, dear. Saying, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, but, but I do think, how, how do we choose those trusted sources? Important. That, I think, is important. Because, Nate, for example, you're a trusted source in my life. Like, we're friends. I text you. I might, you know, ask you your opinion on something or thoughts on something. And I'll say, um, if I'm asking you something medical related, Ryan's also a friend, and I text him the same question, your words are going to carry more weight. And that's because uh, you have background and experience in that particular, you know, world of medicine. So like, how, how do we choose our trusted resources or our, tr our trusted sources? Because for a lot of people, I think, I don't know that they're critically determining like who's going to be a trusted source in my life when I'm determining like what I believe about these things. Right. Uh, and that gets so tough because, you know, one of the easiest ways to recognize a trusted source is to look at their track record. Like, you know, I may trust one weather channel over a different one because I've seen they tend to predict the weather more, more frequently. Um, but it's very different when we're dealing with something that has some stochastic element to it, where there's a little bit of chance and probability and, you know, we can give our best guess, but we can still be wrong. And an expert who guesses wrong for the right reasons may still be better than someone who by dumb luck got the right answer, if that makes sense. And that's a very hard idea yeah. for some people to accept because in their mind, this person said a guess and it was correct. Why aren't they, why aren't they right? Why aren't they smarter? Why shouldn't I trust them in the future? Um, and it, it again comes down to the fact that, you know, especially in science, science is a process, not a body of knowledge. Mm. And applying that process correctly is what makes someone an expert, not the fact that by happenstance, they stumbled upon the correct answer. So mm. um, for some fields, there exists extensive systems for validating that a person is an expert or not. Like in medicine, for example, if you didn't believe that I was actually a doctor, you could go to the American Board of Internal Medicine or American Board of Pediatrics, type in my name and see my board certifications. Or you could go on my hospital's website and you know, see me listed as one of their providers. You know, there's ways of validating it. But at the same time, there's also people who completely invent their own organizations and certify themselves. So, you know, there are people who, I, I don't want to call out anyone in particular, but there are people who have essentially invented societies under the guise of a medical organization and certified themselves through it. Um, so like one example is as a pediatrician, one of, one of a couple things I do, um, I'm boarded by the American Board of Pediatrics, and I'm part of a society called the American Academy of Pediatrics. And the American Academy of Pediatrics 
offers recommendations both to medical providers and to parents and caregivers of children on how best to take care of kids, right? Now, in most specialty societies, they're either called the American Academy of Blank or the American College of Blank. In pediatrics, it happens to be the American Academy, whereas in cardiology, it's the American College of Cardiologists, okay? So here's how that becomes a little tricky. There exists an organization called the American College of Pediatrics, which mm. seems to follow the same style as many other specialty societies, except it doesn't represent pediatricians in the US. It represents a small handful of pediatricians, and ultimately, it's a conservative propaganda engine. So it, it, it's, it's widely denounced by pediatrics in general as not speaking on our behalf, but it has a fairly convincing and well-selected name through which mm. it insinuates and puts forward some very, very not good information in many ways. And I don't want to call any specific points up, just know that you know, most pediatricians disagree and it does not have a large membership base within pediatrics compared to the American Academy of Pediatrics. And I'm sure someone's calling their lawyer about that statement right now, but everything I've said is fairly, that's my, that's my opinion of what I've observed from them so far. Sure. And, and what you're saying, and just to, to, to put that, to like apply that to what we're talking about, you're saying like that some people will go there, uh, maybe even with the idea that like, oh, anybody that's a part of this is a trusted source. Like, and yeah, now, now, now they've disarmed the critical thinking mechanism a little bit or put that aside because what they're connected to. And that's what's so hard is like you have just so much fake news or, or information that's disguised as a trusted source um, in our world today from all different angles and all different agendas too. Just to be clear, it's not, it's, it's both sides that are doing this. It's all sides. Like, you know, um, it, it would seem at least like, and so, I, I think it takes, it just takes so much more work to determine what you believe. And I think that's actually the, the hard thing is, is like, I wonder if, if a conspiracy theory is easy to believe, if that might also be something to pause and say, hold on, did I do work to come yeah. to that conclusion? Because if I didn't do any work to come to that conclusion, except watch a 20 minute video clip, then maybe I should pause and actually like do some work. I wonder mm -hmm. if that's part of it. Like, you know. Yeah. And there was a yeah, sorry, go ahead, Ryan. I've talked too much. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I was just no, I love that. I was just gonna say, in terms of sources, you know, again, just anecdotally from my vantage point, it seems like we we don't even we don't even care about the sources. <laughs> you, you know, like we're just yeah, information is so ubiquitous. And I'll just give an example of two different types of Facebook book posts that um, were sort of in response and related to Plandemic. So I watched Plandemic um, and, then I, and then I came away with the sense of like, well, if this is true, then, then, you know, man, who knows, right? Anything's possible. So then the question for me was like, all right, where would I go? What trusted resources would I be able to compare this against, right? Because it sounds, you know, at least face value, like this is legitimate. But I, I know enough to know, like, all right, I have to compare it to some other data. And I, I think in a lot of cases, many of us, we, like, where do you go, right? Because the internet is so ubiquitous with, with resources. And so I went right to Wikipedia. No, I'm just kidding. But, um, <laughs> but, but, you know, so I ended up, it wasn't the only thing, but I found this one particular resource that, that a gal had posted. I think, Justin, you liked it. And it was, yeah, it was yeah. really straightforward. It was, it was very factual. And she included all of her links to the actual sources. And I loved it because it wasn't emotional. 
Uh, and, and it just, I just threw it up there because I'm like, you know, for those people that are trying to find the truth in the mess of all this, this would be a good way to sort of, you know, try and differentiate and, and get to the truth. Whereas I there was another post that was supposedly posted by a gentleman who was a doctor. And all it was, was it was a copy and paste, like literally somebody copy and pasted and at the bottom it said barred from a friend. And, you know, granted this had been shared, I don't know how many different numbers of times. And I mean, after reading it, I just, I said to myself, one, he was a cardiologist, if this person even exists. And there was no sources. There was a lot of claims, you know, it was just, and so like, I just began to dig and just, you know, find like, okay, if this person even exists, one, they're a cardiologist, they're not an epidemiologist or viral, you know what I mean? And like- I mean, we can be both, but don't Yeah, <laughs> right, right. But, but my point was that it just, reading it led to, to more questions than answers, but I was so surprised by how many people shared that as though it were factual, knowing at minimum, you could literally copy and paste that and just change a line here or there <laughs> because it wasn't the original, you know, post. Um, and it could just be anywhere. So I don't know, it's just interesting. I think we've, I don't want to say we've lost the art of of the desire to have some type of of source, but you know, at least you know, in in the world of Facebook and different areas like that, it just seems like we uh, there's a just the meme mentality mentality. We just want it easy, and we just want it to align with what kind of we're already our our preconceived uh, notions are. Right, exactly, and that's that's one thing that unfortunately isn't really taught so well is how do you analyze evidence, and when two people have opposing evidence which, you know, quote, wins, if you will. Yeah. Um, and that's why on one of the first days of medical school, we're talking, you know, the pyramid of evidence, if you will, mm. uh, which is a way of saying like, you know, what outranks what, when things conflict, how do you choose what's correct? Yeah. The very bottom of the pyramid, the absolute basis is background information or expert opinion. Someone just said something and you kind of trust them. And then above that is case controlled studies or a case series, like someone published, hey, I saw this in a clinic and this patient had this and this is what happened to them. And then above that is cohort studies. Well, I looked at a large group of people. Here's what happened to all of them. Hmm. And above that is a randomized controlled trial. I took a large number of people. I'd separate them into two groups. I did something to one group and not the other. And here's how they differ. And then that keeps going up until eventually at the top, you reach a systematic review, which is like saying, well, the American College of Cardiologists looked at every study for how best to treat heart attacks. And this is what all the data collectively says. And so ultimately, no one person can topple the entire pyramid hmm. because at the peak is basically what does the collective weight of the scientific literature tell us? And so if you came forward and said, hey, I saw a YouTube video that posted a link to this study on PubMed. I looked up that study and boy, it was so well crafted. It was gorgeous. It says that humans actually aren't real and that we're all computer simulations. <laughs> like that's, that flies in the face of everything else that we believe. And ultimately, just that one thing can't undo the preponderance of evidence to the contrary. Um, so to, to try and find what a trusted source is, it's reasonable to start with people whose profession involves studying these things and saying like, okay, why do you believe what you do? Usually those people will be able to direct you to the specific points on which they base their data. Um, and, and in medicine, we're great at that. We'll tell you, we'll actually rank, you know, our recommendations based on the evidence behind them. So, you know, when the American College of Pediatricians or the American you know, College of Physicians or Cardiologists says, we think you should use this medicine. We say, that's a, that's a, you know, a grade 2A recommendation on a basis of evidence that's level, you know, C or something like that. Like, they're, they're not shy about, here's how strongly we believe this, and here's how confident we are that it's true. Mm. Um, you don't see that in a lot of other professions. 
most people just say, oh, this is true. And everyone who believes otherwise is a sheeple, you know? Hmm. So it's, yeah. But, but yeah, I mean, it's recognizing the hallmark of good science as some degree of uncertainty, but with the basis of hard evidence that can be reproduced and presented to someone else. And, and also it takes time to get that evidence, which I think does, really, yeah. really matters in all of this because the conspiracy theory for coronavirus right now is out there, right? Like, right. like but you can say, well, we know that not to be the case, but we don't have all the answers yet, right? But you can't, you know, you can't, you can't share the top of the pyramid yet. And, well, and sometimes, that, that, I mean, there are sometimes where we really can do that even for this. Like when people go out and say, oh, well, the coronavirus was in the flu shot all along. Like we've had flu shots long enough to know what's in them and what's not. Like yeah. that, we have the top of the pyramid already before anyone says anything. Sure. Or if someone says something that is directly counterfactual on its face, like when she says, there are no vaccines against RNA viruses. When I heard that, I shouted some very unchristlike things and threw my phone across the room. <laughs> because that is so, and, and, and that was so telling to me because any physician, any physician at all knows that's not true. It's huh. so easy to disprove. She can't possibly be trying to convince the medical community. She's trying to talk to people who don't know any better. Hmm. And that was the moment I'm like, she has no interest in telling the truth at all because the people who she's trying to change can see clear through this. She's not even trying to hide the lie. Hmm. Mm. Okay, so let's do this. Let's shift gears. Let's, let's together, I think this will be a fun little exercise. Um, let's rank the top five conspiracy theories <laughs> in popularity right now. And I think we could probably just go ahead and put pandemic as number one right now. So Is that fair? just for this current? For this current right now, this moment, what, what are the top five conspiracy theories? And that doesn't mean it can't be the moon landing, mm. um, like, because that still might be a top five. But I would say pandemic takes the cake right now just because it's still out there. I mean, um, it, it's probably in the top five. I don't know if I'd give it number one anymore because I think... I think we have done a good job of trying to clean up after it and it's not enjoying the same popularity it did even a couple of weeks ago. Okay. Okay. What, what, uh, what, what would you say is number one then, Nate? Oof. Um, Flat earth? No, no, no. It's definitely something like right now it's definitely something about coronavirus. It, it's probably, it's probably more related to the origin of the virus. Like it was released okay. from a lab or it was designed by Bill Gates or something. All right. Like oh some, yeah. Some okay. In, okay. So Something we'll say, about the insidious source of the virus. I we'll just say origin. We'll just say origin. Bill Gates slash um, uh, Wuhan labs. Lab. Yeah. yeah. Okay. We'll just do that for for that. Okay. Um, Ryan, why don't you give me one that you think is popular right now, or or even just in the recent future? I mean. Yeah. I mean uh, that it's related to five G. You know. That, okay. Five G. That's why we're all tucked away so they can build more towers, and that that's, okay. and that's actually causing you know people's. Uh, symptoms. I've heard that as well. Okay. So we've got pandemic, origin story, 5G, and then I want two that are non-coronavirus related. So it could be any two that are fairly popular or at least in the public knowledge that are not coronavirus related. Hmm. Should we do flat earth or is that just not? I, mean, I don't that's... even want to humor flat earth anymore. <laughs> like it's <laughs> like, it, it, it more people are talking about flat earth than actually believing in it because of how absurd it is. I don't think it poses any particular danger. I think the number of adherents to that is grossly overestimated just by how fun it is to make fun of these individuals. <laughs> like I, that cannot be one of the top five problems with the world right now. Is there any danger in someone believing in a flat earth, Nate? 
I mean, I guess it depends on their profession. Like, if they're an airline pilot, I kind of want them to know how the world is shaped. <laughs> or if they're like, you know, a, a, the captain of a ship, they should know. I mean, for most people, I don't think that it makes a huge difference to them, except for the fact that it lends credence to what, well, and the thing about this is we have this term called crank magnetism, which is the idea that people who are attracted to one ridiculous conspiracy theory or, you know, counterfactual belief tend to have others. You know, the same people who are anti-vaccine tend also to be 9-11 truthers or et cetera, et cetera. You know, it's, no one just believes in a flat earth and nothing else. They also believe in lizard overlords or the Illuminati. So it's... <laughs> anything so is, is that just a desire to be a contrarian and the response kind of. you get from well, people when you're it, when you're a contrarian well it, it's also it, it promises the delightful notion that you in front of a computer can be smarter and you can outsmart all the people whose job is to learn these things for true like you're smarter mm. than the rocket scientists you found out the shape of the earth and they didn't yeah. you know so it's it's very pleasant for people to think that oh, I didn't actually need to go to school for 16 years to be a pediatrician. I just went to an essential oil store. Now I know better than my doctor. You know, mm. like that's a very, it's it's relieving for people to know they don't need to put in the time and the work to gain expertise. Okay. And, you know, so like that's that's the idea that I think it's, it's not so much that, you know, they get a reaction out of people, although some people do that. I don't think those ones really, you know, adhere to those beliefs quite as strongly, but it's the idea that, you know, they got the right answer when no one else did. They yeah. like that special feeling. All right. We'll take flat earth off the, off the board then. All right. Two, That's just I, so I silly. Well, let me, I, can I just say in relation to that? Cause it just made ahead. me think, cause I was listening to uh, a Ted talk where this gal was talking about conspiracy theories and she talked about that. She actually joined a different number of secret societies as part of her research, flat earth. Nice. And what she talked about was the hero's journey and how all of these conspiracy oh. theories use that particular narrative to invite you in. And then you become the hero of the story. So it aligns with exactly what Nate's talking. Like that Ooh. is the intention that she said she gets these emails, you know, and then the whole entire narrative is that you're at the center and, you know, you are the one that is against, you know, the great evil um, you know, you're Neo, you're whatever it is, you know, and, uh, yeah. and it's just, I mean, obviously we know how compelling narrative is. I mean, that, that's part of who we are as a, as a, a people group. So it's just interesting to hear Nate say that because it definitely aligns with, with, uh, her research, and what mm. she was talking about. So I didn't think about the hero narrative and all that. And, and the truth is, is like, there are real whistleblowers in our world yeah. that expose, oh, yeah. that expose evil. And so, or, or corruption. And so when you see those people and you, they're, you're influenced by them and you want to be like them, mm -hmm. and then a conspiracy theory comes around, you might think, I'm going to be the whistleblower in all of this, uh, the hero whistleblower, you know? And that's a, yeah, that's interesting. Wow. And people should feel empowered to blow the whistle when they've come upon something that, you know, deserves to have the whistle blown, I guess. Like, that's not a wrong reaction. What's different is the, the idea that someone can think that I'm going to join a society of, you know, hundreds or thousands of people who believe the same thing. Like, I'm probably not going to leave my name in the history books for believing in this. <laughs> and right. when there's something like, and, and when there's something that's been around for so long and has been so well studied, like, what are the chances that I specifically am going to be the one that has the breakthrough on it? Like, that's because a lot of these things, a lot of these conspiracy theories, deserved study when they were first proposed. Like I said, when someone first said, do vaccines cause autism? 
we scratched our heads and says, I don't think so, but who knows? Let's look and see. And we looked and we saw, and the answer was no. Mm. And so the difference is now when people come forward and join that movement, they do so in spite of a preponderance of evidence that they're wrong. Mm. And so, you know, and, and that's the same thing for most of these other things as well. It's not something where this is a novel concept that no one's ever done. I mean, I can't remember the last time I was in the office and someone brought up one of these theories about alternative medicine or you know, secret diseases. And I was shocked and said, oh my, I've never heard this before. I'm so concerned. Like it's always the same recycled trash. And <laughs> so I, I don't know. I mean, it's part is, of it is, is. I was gonna say, is it fair to say that most whistleblowers like pay a price for what they right. believe beyond just yes. being like, because like, I would say like, if you think Edward Snowden is a conspiracy theorist, I think one of the biggest evidences of him not being that is the amount that he was willing to exchange for like, first of all, he's published legitimate documents, but like even beyond that, like just his story in general of like, he doesn't have the freedoms he once had. He's, he's laid down all kinds of economical and um, career advantages by making the decision to be a whistleblower on the subject in which he blew the whistle. And I keep using Snowden just to be clear, like I'm not like co-signing what he did. I'm just more saying like, I think it's interesting that like to think of him as a, as a conspiracy theory, it's like, well, a typical person is not willing to like be excommunicated from their tribe, let alone their country for, and potentially put in prison for, for doing something by blowing the whistle, it typically isn't convenient for whistleblowers to believe what they believe or to expose what they expose. Whereas conspiracy theorists, it's usually not costing them anything to believe what they believe, right? I mean, well, I it, that's, that's unfair. Maybe that's that, unfair. That may or may not be true. It depends. So the, the fact of the matter is sometimes the reverse happens. Sometimes a person generates a conspiracy theory because they've already paid the consequences and need to justify them somehow. Uh, and okay. so a classic example is Judy Mikovits, yeah. the lady from the pandemic video. Um, so she was fired from her position and faced legal ramifications for engaging in research misconduct. And so when people ask, hey, what did you do to get fired? You know, instead of saying, oh, I did something wrong and was punished for it, the the more pleasant reaction would be, oh, well, they just got rid of me because I was too good for them or I found the truth and they didn't want to know about it. Um, likewise, Andrew Wakefield, who had his medical license taken away and was kicked out of the United Kingdom, essentially. Now he's saying, oh, I wasn't kicked out because I legally drew blood from children at my kid's birthday party to fabricate data for a falsified study. He said, oh, I found the truth and, you know, Big Pharma was against it. So people are aware of that perception that martyrs tend to suffer for their cause. And oftentimes they're using that to further their mission. So bear in mind, sometimes people who have, you know, faced reaction from society have it for legitimate reasons. It doesn't automatically justify their position. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point too. Okay. So we still need two more actual conspiracy theories that are non um, coronavirus related. About Area 51 aliens. Ooh, Area 51 aliens. Oh, gosh. Wasn't that man. a thing? Was that about a year ago that they were going to Yeah, form? I can't. Well, I don't, I don't know how many people actually believed it. I think it was just something fun to do because oh, they yeah. were bored people on the internet. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but lately UFOs are coming back into popularity. I well, think. didn't the Pentagon publish something? Yeah. Did oh, you like see I, that video? I, yeah. Yeah, that was nuts, man. What is that about? I don't know. <laughs> that's That's wild. Moving around all like all different than like what anything we have could move. I don't know. That's an interesting conversation. All right. One more. 
one more. We've got Plandemic, The Origins, 5G, Area 51, one more. Hmm. I feel like it has to be something political. Like, you know, so-and-so's political opponent was actually like, I don't know, a KKK member, or, you know, had to deal with Satan or something. I don't know. I don't know if Obamagate would qualify, whatever the hell that is. <laughs> I still haven't figured out what Obamagate is. Um, I don't know. What do you guys think? Right, let, what do you think, Ryan? You pick one. Did we say 9-11 or no? We, I mean, we didn't say 9-11 for this one. Yeah. Would you say that's still pretty popular? Uh, I don't know that it's, I mean, popular. I, I don't know. That's just, I would say that's up there. At least in 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 my reference point, in terms of, you know, I mean, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna veto. We're not gonna go down the 9/11. That's rabbit. fine. Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. gonna I'm gonna veto Nate. I'm gonna veto Nate, <laughs> and we're gonna we're gonna throw Flat Earth as the fifth one. Uh -oh. All right, fine. Okay. Okay, and we're just gonna do it because I do think there's while I while I I I I, th I think it's interesting that that is a thing. Okay, so, so we'll just we'll just do that. Here's All what right. I want to do with these five. I want to go through. <laughs> and list three reasons why they're conspiracies. So what, what do we think are top three reasons why they're false conspiracies? And let's list at least like one reason why people so quickly believe it. Does that make sense? And, and okay. look, we haven't, we haven't done, I mean, some of us have maybe done a little bit of research, but it might not be that we have all the information. So we should probably say that up front. It's not like these are, there's a list of five that we went out and like, took the whole week to research prior <laughs> to coming here to, to have all the information. But ultimately, based on what we know, the three of our heads combined here, what are three reasons not to believe this particular thing? Let's start with Plandemic, who I would say Nate is probably the most, um, you know, uh, has the most experience to probably speak on this. Nate, if you were sitting down with somebody and you only had, you know, uh, three reasons to give them why Plandemic was just not something to give attention to slash belief to what would you say so i would say first off consider that the source of this information is a discredited researcher who has a long track record of profiting from medical conspiracy theories and in particular the anti-vaccine movement and all of her claims are made completely without any evidence to back them up so if anything i shouldn't even be having this discussion because the burden of evidence is on her <laughs> but all of the things she's brought forward are directed specifically to get you to take a certain action which she wants, which is namely reject vaccines, don't wear masks, and you know, eliminate the medical establishment headed by you know the NIH and Dr. Fauci and everyone else who did her wrong while she was a worker. Um, so she's motivated predominantly by uh, uh, some grievances that she has with the medical community and with financial incentives she has to tell you non-factual information. Um, the biggest reason why I don't believe in any of it is because all of the claims she makes are things that are well within the expertise of any physician or epidemiologist to evaluate, and they are patently, painfully false. And if I needed to, I would go down through specific points, like her claims about the coronavirus and the flu shot, which is ridiculous, or the idea that we have no effective vaccines against RNA viruses, which is completely ridiculous, or the idea that masks can activate the coronavirus, which is completely ridiculous. And I, I wouldn't necessarily just preach all of that at a person. I'd say, do any of these sound convincing to you? Let's explore them a little further. And I would talk about those points in detail if needed. Okay, um, real, real quick, real quick. You said something about masks. It, I, I'm still hearing all kinds of beliefs about masks, man. Should I wear a mask? I mean, I wear a mask. I'm going to wear a mask. I feel like 
I've, I've, I've heard enough doctors tell me it's a good idea. Um, and I've had conversations with you about it, but can you tell people like the truth about masks and not, oh, that sure, you're the, not that you're the, like, you know, I, I don't know. I just, I feel like there's probably a lot of people who have heard a lot of different things. Sure. About sure. Masks. All right. Well, let me, let me summarize it. So we use masks for two different things and we have three types of masks for doing those two things. One function of a mask is to keep you from catching the virus. And another is to keep you from giving someone else the virus when you don't know you have it. And the three types of masks that we have in general categories are respirators like N95s or PAPRs, surgical masks like the ones that we wear in operating rooms or in the hospital, and cloth masks, which are typically homemade or you know, commercially manufactured for general public to use. The only type of mask that seems to protect you from getting the virus is a respirator like an N95. And if we could give everyone in the country a respirator, we probably would, to be honest, because it might actually work. Now, some people can't wear a respirator, and in order to make sure it works, it has to be fit to your specific face, which is something that we do in the hospital every year. So it's not really feasible for everyone to use that. The second option, a surgical mask, is what we all wear in the hospital at all times, in many cases, to keep us from spreading it while also giving some degree of protection from absorbing it. But surgical masks, while they're not completely effective at stopping the spread of the virus, are definitely effective in other situations like when we're in the operating room. So again, and to be clear, what you're doing there is you're minimizing the amount of droplets that get from your mouth out, correct? Is that is that what, yeah, that's that what is the mask true. is doing? That is true. But it is also true that non-cloth non surgical masks do to some degree filter droplets coming in yes. as well. Okay, 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 yeah, yeah. So that, that is real, that happens. Cloth masks will not stop you from inhaling the virus. Cloth masks are 97% porous to the very small aerosolized molecules that you would inhale. But they are good at stopping large droplets from coming out of your mouth and nose when you talk, breathe, or cough. So everyone should wear a mask to keep them from spreading the virus, which they may not even know that they have, but only people who are at very high risk, usually working in a hospital, should be wearing an N95, and only if it's been custom fit for them, otherwise it can be counterproductive or even unsafe. Now, having said that, some people still don't want to wear even a cloth mask, and the reasons they come up for that are absolutely comical. The idea that, I don't know where this is coming from, people on the internet are saying that if you wear a mask, even a cloth mask, you'll inhale your own CO2, your carbon dioxide. And that's just the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in a long time. And there is a lot of competition for that title, let me tell you. <laughs> so again, like you, if you hold these masks up to the light and look through them, you can, you can clearly see they're not airtight. Air can go just perfectly fine through them. And even surgical masks, which are more tight than a cloth mask, we put them on patients. And part of my work is I can get a blood sample and measure how much oxygen and carbon dioxide are in their blood it doesn't change from wearing a mask. What, that, mm -hmm. That's just not a thing. And again, this is an example of something where people form conclusions first and gather evidence second. People don't want to wear a mask for a number of reasons, not the least of which includes the idea that somehow it's a visible symbol of their rights being intruded upon. And so they make up mm -hmm. this absurd claim to justify what is essentially their just desire not to wear one. Um, anyway, and then of course, one that I'd never even heard before that's also silly is in the pandemic when they said that the mask activates the virus, which I, I don't even think I need to address that at this point with how absurd it is. That's not a thing at all. Um, and even if it was, if you breathed it out into the mask, it means it was already in your body. So even if you inhale it back in again, it's no different than if you just 
didn't do anything. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, I don't even think this requires the expertise of a scientist to tell you why that's nonsense. So if I was to say as a pastor, a tangible way you can love your neighbor right now is to wear a mask as you go out because you may be asymptomatic and you may very well spread the disease to someone else. Would that be a scientifically accurate claim? And then, because I know you are uh, a follower of Jesus, would you, would you find that to be an accurate way of loving your neighbor amid a pandemic? I, I think that's absolutely correct. And it, it's somewhat helpful for me to have some data in front of me where I can say, there does seem to be a benefit in community transmission when people are wearing masks. This isn't just theoretical, this actually seems to work. There are essentially no risks to doing this, except some people may touch their face more frequently if they wear it incorrectly, especially. Uh, but for the most part, this is something that's relatively harmless for you, but could make a world of difference to someone else. And, mm. you know, when, when Jesus says, if you have two tunics and your neighbor has none, give them both to them. You know, if, if you have two masks, you know, wear a mask. I don't know, I'm trying to find an analogy. <laughs> but like, you know, clearly doing things that are at least mildly inconvenient to you are still within the range of what you're commanded to do to love your neighbor. I don't think yeah. it's wrong at all. No, I, I agree. Yeah. Okay, cool. Cool. Well, I think you you handled pandemic really good. Um, can I ask you Ryan, related to that? Oh, go, real quick? go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ryan. I could I could do hours and hours and hours <laughs> of talk on pandemic alone. That was the quick notes, but please go on. And if you address this, I apologize. But I've heard pushback related to for the mass folks that have some type of medical condition like asthma or something like that. So does that is there a validity to that or so those people should probably not wear um N95 respirators for a long period of time. Um, additionally, certain types of cloth masks may have fibers that can irritate them, especially if there's an allergic component or having you know, foreign debris in their airway. Um, there really is no reason why they couldn't wear a surgical mask if they can get their hands on it. And it also is not a carte blanche excuse not to wear a mask. Um, if there are any questions, they can speak with the doctor who manages their asthma and we'd be happy to explain. Excellent. That's good. That's good. All right, Ryan, you're up, man. Three reasons why flat earth is not true. Oh, well, hold on, hold on. Three reasons why it's not true and then a reason why people believe it's true. Do you think we've already kind of covered why people believe the pandemic, or is there another thing you'd want to add on why people believe it, Nate? I, I, I like think you we've kind of already covered that, right? We've covered the big points. People are okay. making money off of misinformation. People like the idea that they're right and the government's wrong. People like being excused from having to take measures like getting a vaccine if it's available, wearing a mask and shutting down business. They okay. want this all to go away and pandemic says, don't worry, this isn't real. Yeah, that is an interesting matter of like psychology that we want yeah. it to go away because I want it to go away. Right. I share I share that with them. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, okay, all right. That may so, actually be the biggest reason is people want to wish this whole thing away. Yeah, that's interesting. All right, so Ryan, this is a very different conspiracy theory, flat mm. earth, because there is no urgency to determine, you know, the shape of the earth, right? Like, I'm not, that's not something I like ponder daily, um, you know? Uh, so uh, three reasons why flat earth isn't really a thing and a reason why people might believe it. Man, I don't know if I can come up with three. I mean, the first- Okay, even just yeah. a couple, whatever. Yeah, I was just yeah. gonna say, I mean, the it- what flies in the face of everything that we know to be true related to science. That's the first thing that comes to mind. Uh, you know, everything that, that is observable about, um, you know, our, our world and, and all of the data reflects otherwise. Uh, so I think that's immediately the thing that comes to mind is that um, it, you know, it, it, it only makes sense in relation to 
a strict, you know, flat reading of the Bible and the cosmology of the ancient world. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, you well, know, that's important because yeah. there was a period of time where the theologically this was the way of understanding the Bible or the way of understanding our, our world, right? Uh, God pulls the four corners of the earth, like yeah. a, a passage. And, and so the idea that the earth was flat was the belief of the church for quite some time. Yeah. And I think if you, you know, you, with a plain reading of scripture, you can take that away. I mean, that, that was the cosmology of the ancient world. It was a, you know, dome-like uh, figure and, and, you know, there was holes in the, uh, what, what was it? The, you know, what was it called? I can't, anyway. The firm, yeah. The firmament. firmament. Yeah. Firmament. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it is interesting. I, I mean, I had watched a couple of videos on, uh, on flat earthers and, it's interesting because the way that this was talked about was that it went away for some time and that there's actually been a resurgence of it because of the internet and things like that. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't have three reasons, but I just think I'm sure Nate can uh, attest to it with the more articulate view, but just, I have one word, science. <laughs> why, why, do you, why do you think, have you ever met someone who legitimately believes flat earth? Ryan? Me? Yeah. Like in person. In person. Uh, cause I, I haven't, I haven't, or I haven't met anybody that legitimately believes it. And they're willing to like, tell me that maybe they do, but I mean, I've listened to some podcasts with some people who yeah. believe it and who give like, like, like they are sold out in believing it and like, believe it's a conspiracy, like that the government's keeping from us and everyone knows it's flat, but they won't say it. Yeah. I've never met anyone in person. I've definitely wa I've listened to some podcasts and then watched some videos and some interviews with some flat earthers. So yeah, beyond yeah. that, I don't have actual personal and, experience. And what's, what's weird is like the person I'm thinking of that was on a, on a podcast, like they're not dumb. Like they're an intelligent individual. Like they, I mean, in the sense that like, that's what I find interesting about conspiracies too, is like you can have a college education and be like an expert in your area of study or, you know, fairly well educated and still believe in a conspiracy theory. That doesn't seem to be a checkbox in the, like, you won't believe in conspiracy theories if you check this box. Like, and here's, here's the big thing about that. So, you know, right now there are, seven billion people in the world and there are a million doctors in the u.s alone which means that even if only less than one tenth of one percent believe in something silly you can find a thousand doctors to back up your <laughs> people can go online and find people with convincing credentials publishing convincing looking studies and you can spend an inordinate amount of time going through just the information that reflects your belief system the difference between what that does and what a scientist does is that a scientist performs systematic review of the literature as a whole you cannot believe in these things unless you deliberately exclude information that disagrees with you. So a person who has a college degree or is highly educated might be able to look at some, you know, some carefully constructed or cherry picked studies and say, look at all this evidence that supports me. And they may stimulate that part of their brain that they trained when they were becoming, you know, uh, an academician or a scientist or whatever they like but they still commit the cardinal sin of forming the conclusion first and then shopping for evidence because if they just looked for evidence on its surface 99 percent of it would say that they're incorrect so there there is still some element of wishful thinking that has to be involved in this but you can be very intellectually satisfied by finding lots and lots of things that support you especially now when there's so many people putting out so much information it's not hard to find a lot of information that supports your belief and that may not have been true 
and not just because of the internet, because of the sheer number of people who are producing this information. Just the population of the earth itself has expanded in a way that makes it easier to be a conspiracy theorist. You can make much bigger echo chambers than you could earlier on in history. And there's no checks and balances in most cultures for that. Like you can post right. whatever you want to the internet, at least right. in our culture. Yeah. So, okay. Um, and you can test it. Do you know how you test it? How? You take a level with you on an airplane. Have you seen these videos? What? <laughs> well, so no. the, the, the idea is that if the earth is, you know, a sphere, then the, the, the tail or the, or sorry, the tip of the plane should be like tipped towards the earth as it's going around, you know, the, ah. and so that the level that you have with you on the plane should not be level, but it should, you know, show that there, the plane is actually dipped. And so it's just, but that's not how it works. <laughs> oh, because... I know, but that's how I've seen people actually try to prove that the earth is flat. So I'm just like, right. But, but again, that, that denies all the evidence of physics that explains that phenomenon right. better than the earth is flat. Exactly. You know, what, like if, what, is there a way you could legitimately, like, is there anything we could do scientifically beyond what we have now to like legitimately debunk this? Like, I guess, I mean- People have been debunking been this since debunked. the days of the ancient Greeks. I mean, <laughs> in the fifth century BC, Greek philosophers knew the earth was a sphere. The fifth century yes. BC, they didn't even need satellites, literally taking pictures of the earth and showing you the shape for heaven's sake. I mean, like, <laughs> The fact that this is still a question boggles my mind, except it doesn't because I understand the psychology behind it. But still, like, well, what what I would say is I would say like like outside of of information handed to me by other people, I have no way. Like, I I can prove that what I'm holding in my hand right now is a pen because it's a pen, and I'm I'm right. holding it in my hand, and I know, and it writes, and it does. But like, if if you want me to scientifically prove that 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 I'm I'm on something round instead of something flat. It is a little bit like, well, I guess I've just always believed the trusted sources. And I then mean, it's like, well, you're yeah. a sheep. And it's like, well, right. no, I mean, I kind of believe those trusted sources to be true. And yes, I don't think those pictures are all fake. But I guess, is there anything like we can do beyond that? I mean, probably not. I mean, I don't, and certain people are just going to believe what they believe. But I find it I mean, interesting that young people are believing this one, or at least that the metrics seem to show it. It could just be that young people, like you said earlier, are just kind of goofing off and like not really legitimately believing this, but kind of find it funny to check a box on a survey and say, I believe the earth's flat. Like, I don't know, maybe that's. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, there, there, there's a lot of experiments you can do. You can put a stick in the ground upright in two different places and measure the angle of the shadow at different times a day. And based on some simple calculations, you could estimate what the curvature of the earth is. And that's how the ancient Greeks did it now. And this was done in Alexandria. Um, you could look and see that you can recognize distant objects um, eventually receding over the edge of the curvature of the earth, like when you're out at sea and see ships kind of almost like they're coming up out of the water as they come out around the curvature. Um, you could get a telescope and look at all the other planets and see, boy, all the others are round. Isn't that weird how earth is the <laughs> only flat planet? <laughs> or you could, you could like during a lunar eclipse, you can see the shadow of the earth as it crosses the moon. And no matter what side the moon crosses on, no matter what the rotation of the earth is, it always casts a, a round shadow on the moon. I mean, there's, there's stuff you can do. You, you, honestly, you can do this, Justin. Honestly, Nate, I was just trying to get you to talk about flat Earth because you said earlier. <laughs> One of these days, we'll go. We'll get a pair of sticks and we'll stick them in the ground and measure shadows. It'll be a fun oh, experiment man. for the kids. You yeah, can prove the Earth is round. Yeah, I probably should prove it to him now before the internet gets them. Uh, <laughs> all right, so let's let's move on to five G. He knows I get worked uh, up about this stuff. Okay, <laughs> let's move on to five G and let's let's make this a little broader too because. I, 
I mean, and I might be dumb in this, but, and I, I typically am the dumb one, so that's okay. Um, but I do believe there's some potential evidence for like holding your cell phone to your head for long periods of time can potentially like cause health risks or being around, you know, certain devices potentially can cause health risks. I don't really know the 5G stuff, but I know, I, I mean, I know what I've heard, but I haven't like dove deep into what people are claiming about 5G, but it seems like they're claiming that the, the wavelengths of, some, uh, of 5G have the ability to, to impact a variety of things. I think before we dive into 5G, is it true from a, a medical position that like, not that it is 3G or 4G or 5G that's doing it, but that there is some negative to being around electronic devices in large doses or having a phone up against your head? Or is that just something back in the day before technology advanced to where we are now that I'm thinking about? So for one thing, let's, let's talk specifically about the idea of cancer. Do cell phones cause cancer? And the answer is no. We, there's no evidence to suggest that that's the case. Um, so in order to cause cancer, you have to actually be able to damage the DNA of the cell. And for that, you need to have one of two things happen. One is ionizing radiation, which would be like x-rays. The other would be photochemical effects like thymine dimerization. So let me break that down a little bit. Um, when an x-ray hits cells, and it specifically hits strands of DNA, it can actually produce breaks in the DNA. And if both strands of the DNA break, that's very difficult, if not impossible, for the cell to completely fix, and often that cell will die. So it can also injure specific areas of the genome that are responsible for what we call tumor suppression regions, and that can actually make you more likely to form you know, cancer. And that's why, that's why radiation can cause cancer, okay? Yeah. Um, conversely, we have something like ultraviolet light, which is not ionizing radiation. It can't directly produce double-stranded breaks in DNA, but um, most people know that the DNA is made up of four letters, G, C, A, and T. If you have two Ts next to each other, and that region is hit by a beam of UV radiation, it can sort of tie them together, and that can cause problems when the, when the cell is trying to read that strip of DNA. It can cause you know, misreads to occur, or at the very least, it has to be cut out and repaired, and that's another opportunity for a mistake during the transcription process. So those are the two big ways that electromagnetic radiation can cause cancer, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, having said that, at lower energy levels, while you may not be able to affect the DNA, you can do things like you can affect certain proteins which have very highly positive or negative charge, or you can change the electrical activity very subtly in the area of the cell. And in the brain, which relies heavily on large areas of electrical activity with uh, neurons communicating with each other through, um, it's a different type of electricity than we think of in the plug. It's mostly by large ions like sodium, calcium, chloride, or potassium. Um, but th there is some theoretical concern, maybe even a little bit of empiric evidence that you can at least temporarily influence brain function with the presence of certain types of radiation that you may get from cell phones. Okay. Um, one thing that's worth noting though is radiation decays with a square of distance. So what that means is if I step away from something by let's say three feet, um, the radiation drops by ninefold. Well, really, I should be using meters if I'm going to be a good scientist, but no one knows how meters work. So um, <laughs> what that means is if you step away from the source even a little bit, you dramatically decrease the power of that radiation. And so unless you physically hold it right up next to your face, you're probably not going to get much of an effect. Now, unfortunately, that's what we do with cell phones. But it's not, it doesn't cause 
the deterministic effects that we would see with radiation. So what I mean by that is when you are exposed to ionizing radiation, even if you don't necessarily get cancer right that second from it, you can still do permanent harm that accumulates over time. Less powerful forms of radiation don't really do that, however. And so it's not like if you just use your cell phone enough, you'll eventually get cancer. That doesn't really happen. Okay. Um, and then additionally, if something is any degree of distance away from you, the effect that it has on your body is essentially insignificant. Um, so we know that we know that some people, for example, uh, claim to be sensitive to Wi-Fi. They claim that it gives them headaches or fatigue or something like that. Um, and this is something where in the early days of Wi-Fi, we said, huh, what an interesting thought. Let's see if we can test it. And, and we did studies where we took people and we put them in a room with a Wi-Fi router, Wi-Fi router, sorry, with all the LEDs deactivated. So you couldn't tell if it was on or off. And we'd spend some time in the rooms and we'd have it turned on and we'd have some time where it was turned off. And the patients who claimed to be affected by Wi-Fi had no idea whether it was on or off, even over long periods of time. So we said, okay, well, this is probably a placebo effect. It probably isn't real. And again, there isn't any plausible scientific explanation for why it would have that effect. So that's been generally debunked for the most part. Okay. Now, in terms of 5G, 5G, while it, it has, well, it's a little bit more energetic than some of the prior models, and that's one of the reasons why it works, it still is less energetic than a more common form of electromagnetic radiation, which is visible light. So the only difference between visible light and X-rays and gamma rays and radio waves is the wavelength and in contrast, the frequency of the wave, but it's all the same stuff. Okay. And so you can reliably predict what it's going to do based on what happens upstream and downstream in the spectrum. So with 4G being like 600 to 700 megahertz, I think, uh, the 5G range is, uh, let's see, I think it's like 2.5 to 3.7 gigahertz. Um, yeah, I, I'll be honest, I don't have all these numbers memorized off the top You're of my head. You're fine. The point is, point is, light is more energetic than 5G. <laughs> okay, okay. So, Ryan, Ryan, what I'm going to ask you is, what are people claiming that 5G is doing to them? Or has the power to do to them? Or that the government is doing to them through 5G? Yeah, I'm I mean, just curious. What, I, what are the claims? Well, I'll, I'll admit I'm, I'm new to this particular conspiracy theory. Uh, I had heard whispers of it and then decided to do a little bit of, of uh, fact-finding, quote-unquote, um, related to it. But basically, it's just that 5G is what's causing the virus. That's kind of the main takeaway that I have. And that one of the, this particular conspiracy theorist that I listened to, David Icke, said that the reason that we have been, we're doing social distancing and they want us all in our homes is so that they can put up all the 5G towers and do this without us knowing exactly what's happening so again it doesn't make any sense to me but that's kind of that the, makes sense i'm in i'm in my house <laughs> i can't see him put up the 5g tower right and... yeah so that that's all i've really heard in relation to it and of course you know you just do a simple google search and you can find plenty of articles that you know debunk it and show that i feel like even true. before coronavirus though people were talking about 5g as and, like a yes. negative thing like like that i feel like it, it i almost feel like coronavirus is just the thing that got tacked on yes 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 conspiracies oh, about and, 5g because people were talking about this before okay go ahead nate you seem and to and that's that's a huge thing about conspiracy theories is that whenever there's some new vague concern that people have, it's effortless to blame whatever your demon of choice is for that mm -hmm. concern. Yeah. And so again, the anti-vax people are out here saying coronavirus is caused by a vaccine. The 5G people are out here saying that 5G caused the coronavirus. 
People who hate Bill Gates think that he made it. People who are anti-China <laughs> think it was manufactured in the lab. Every political party thinks the opposite party funded the lab who manufactured it. And whenever you find that happening, whenever your particular conspiracy theory is one of a flurry of postulates villainizing something that people already disliked in the first place, that's usually a big red flag that it's nonsense. Yeah. I heard someone say they thought Elon Musk like was behind it all. I'm like, yep, wow, that's, that's fascinating. Course. That's yeah. fascinating. That, no, that's such a great point, though, Nate, that that, you know, the coronavirus has become this convergence of all of these various conspiracy theories that, uh, you know, in many cases, like I didn't really hear of 5G in that way. But then all of a sudden it started coming up in conversations and that makes so much sense. Yeah, it's just kind of like I'm just going to jump on the, the bandwagon here with my conspiracy theory now. So mm -hmm. interesting. Yeah, whatever I already believe must be attached <laughs> right. to the frustration that I'm experiencing now. So, mm -hmm. and again, I go back to like, I really think one of the, one of the most like telling realities is like a need for control. And, and that need for control only grows when you're experiencing fear or crisis, because now it's even more out of control than it was before. Mm -hmm. And so like, I do think the psychology of it in that regard seems to be pretty, I'm not going to say everyone who believes in conspiracy is it's that way, but it does seem to be like a lot of people want an easy explanation and want control um, of, of the circumstances of what exists. And so like, you could say like, I think 5G causes cancer, it causes cancer, it causes cancer. And there's like no evidence that it does. And you believe that. And then something like coronavirus comes along and you're just like, it causes coronavirus. It like you just like yeah. you make that shift and you don't ever mentally like pause to say, hold on. I mean, should I make that shift? I mean, I know what I believe about this causing cancer, but like, but there's no, there would be no need to pause and make that shift. If you're, if what, if what it's largely doing for you is providing you an explanation and an ability to feel like you have a sense of control over you know, things like cancer and things like coronavirus, like those are things that are hard to feel a sense of control over, like. Yeah, and, and that's the, the refreshing thing about just assimilating today's crisis into your existing conspiracy theory is that you don't have to change anything in response to it. Mm. So the people who believe that the coronavirus came from the flu shot can say, oh, well, thank God I don't get the flu shot, so I'm gonna be perfectly fine. Mm. They don't have to do anything they weren't doing already. They don't have to worry about wearing a mask because, oh, they didn't get Bill Gates' vaccine. And so not only does it further enrich your own conspiracy of choice, like, oh, I knew that this was evil because of all the things it's doing, it does so in a very convenient way that excuses you from having to respond to the real threat that you're explaining away with your conspiracy theory. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so let's talk about, uh, so we'll move on from 5G. So we've done pandemic flat earth, 5G. I want to talk about the origin. We'll leave Bill Gates out of it. We've talked enough about him um, and, uh, and Elon Musk, even though those could potentially be origins of particular people's um, conspiracy theories. But we'll touch on one that I've heard. Um, I've heard that this was made in a lab and uh, it was made as a potential future weapon. Uh, and I think, uh, I think I was watching, I want to say it was Outbreak, uh maybe it was outbreak or or one of those movies you know like that um where they they actually briefly touched on that with ebola maybe or how how like there are 
or at least how how they were again this is a movie this isn't real life so feel free to tell me Nate, <laughs> good to clarify completely wrong completely wrong but i want to say something like in the movie they had talked about weaponized bio warfare let's just say that bio warfare right and uh and i don't know maybe that is a a, a reality that we that's coming because i think anything we can weaponize we will find a way to weaponize and tip and it's weird to see how most scientific advances are usually coming from not most, but a lot of scientific advances are coming from military. Um, so all that to say, like, when we talk about the origin and someone tells me this was made in a lab for the purposes of biowarfare and it got out of hand and it's spreading now, uh, why is that not true? Well, there's a few reasons for that. And you can come at it for two directions. You can say, what's the evidence that this is completely natural and it just came out of the world? And what are the reasons why it wouldn't make a good bioweapon? And I'll start with the former. Why is it that we think this came out of nature? Because it matches very, very closely coronaviruses that have always existed in nature. Um, we've been able to find them in a number of typically mammals, especially bats have been particularly well blamed for this. Um, the, the virus that we have now is only minimally different from that one, except in a way that makes it more suitable for infecting human hosts. So having said that, you could postulate, well, what if someone took one of those viruses and made some little modifications, and now all of a sudden it can infect humans? That's harder to completely debunk on its face, and indeed there is no evidence with 100% certainty that that happened or didn't happen. What I can say is there are only certain mechanisms that we can use or hybridizing or genetically engineering viruses. It's not an effortless job to do. Um, and the tools that we have to do so are generally well known and they tend to leave footprints that you can find like things, you know, with DNA viruses, we could talk about things like methylation patterns in the DNA, or we could look to see if there's evidence that it was, um, that it hybridized in the setting of two viruses that were exposed to the same host versus two viruses that have no geographic proximity to each other. Um, we could look to see in the surrounding structures of other viruses, if there's evidence they're sort of moving in that direction, or did it just sort of come all of a sudden without warning? Um, there's a lot we could get into the weeds with on the molecular biology of viruses, but suffice to say, there isn't any obvious evidence from studying the virus that it appears to have been man-made. Um, and, and short of going really, really deep into the weeds, we can leave it at that for now. Um, okay. But bear in mind, that is something that people are still looking into. Like, it's, it's not so ridiculous that we've dismissed it entirely, because again, like all of these things, it's worth considering before you dismiss it outright. So that is being considered. Um, but in terms of why this would be a poor bioweapon, as opposed to the more common thing I've heard is it just escaped by accident. Um, why would this make a bad bioweapon? Well, typically viruses aren't good weapons for a number of reasons. One of which is they have a tendency to mutate and what you created in the lab may not be what goes out into the world. It may not be as deadly as you intended. It could be more deadly or it could be more deadly to your own people. There's not an easy way of stopping it from affecting certain people, but definitely affecting others, because the whole point of a virus is that it spreads on its own, which makes it very cost-effective as far as weapons go. But it would be stupid to produce and release a bioweapon without you having a means of stopping it, without having a vaccine or a medication you could take that renders you resistant to it. And so what we would expect is everyone in the world gets it except one country which doesn't get it at all. Like, oh, that would raise a lot of eyebrows. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I mean, you, really could, you could say China has the, the, I mean, I guess what I'm saying is it wouldn't be hard for me to believe if someone said, well, China does have the vaccine. They're just not giving it to their people. 
<laughs> well, I, I guess what I guess what I'm saying is I'm saying they're not. Their military has it, but in order to, I, I'm not saying I believe this. I'm just saying yeah. I could I could hear You're someone right. I mean, who, who believes this saying, well, in order to keep up the ruse that they some have, people you know have to I mean? die. Yeah. Some people have to die. Exactly. And 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 talk on this a little more really quickly because I mean I don't know that we need to really go down that rabbit trail, but I, I guess I'm just saying like. I think anybody will find a reason to to give when it comes to those like like I don't know that that would be evidence to change somebody's mind if they're if they've already believe if they already believe that because right because because governments do that like I'm I mean and I mean I could totally see a government making that exchange you know uh, yeah I mean like we can talk about you know, people who use chemical weapons on their own population. Exactly, exactly. Like that, that happens. Exactly. The biggest difference about a virus is a virus doesn't just kill the people you aim it at. It goes everywhere. Yes, yes. And so even if you said, oh, look at me, I have a treatment for it today, it could very well mutate in the course of its journey around the earth and your vaccine no longer works. And any yeah. good scientist knows and fears that property that I would we would never be so confident that we have a durable vaccine that we would release a virus on the entire world and knowing it could come back and bite us in the butt. Like it, it, not even, not even like a very naive person would miss that point. Okay. So bio warfare though, could legitimately be a thing to be concerned about in the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years. I'm not so sure that we've reached the point where we can create an effective bioweapon where that would be worthwhile. Okay. I, I don't think that we have any viruses that are sufficiently predictable that we could release. I don't even think we could make one. I wouldn't even know where to start because all the things that make cells stable and resistant to mutations are even more complex than anything a virus could, could have. Like eukaryotic cells are good at that, like human cells. There's, there's no virus that by its very nature is mutation resistant. Okay. So when you put coronavirus under a microscope, can you, can you typically tell if it's been hybridized or modified? Like if it's, if it's something that did not come from a more natural means? Well, it's not so much the microscope, it's more on the genetics that we're gonna be looking. Okay, okay. Um, but yes, there are clues that it can be there. So for example, with coronaviruses, a lot of people know about the presence of what's called a spike protein, which most viruses have some type of spike protein. It's a little protein on the surface of the virus that targets it to certain cells. Because the thing about viruses, they're not technically alive. They don't have the ability to reproduce on their own. It's basically a package of information in the setting of DNA or RNA wrapped up in either a protein or protein and lipids that make a little coat around it. Um, but the thing is, not every cell can process that DNA or RNA. It's sort of like saying a virus is like a disk, but not every computer can run the program on a disk, if that makes sense. Sure, okay. So okay. let's suppose that a virus has a genome that can only be properly brought into reality by a liver cell or a lung cell, or a heart cell, or something like that. Um, the virus has proteins on its surface that allow it to find and get into just those cells, okay? Mm -hmm. And because of that, that limits what cells they can infect. It's a waste of time for a virus that only affects the liver to get into the spleen. So if there was a virus that just went into any old cell that found it, eventually your body would just sort of absorb it and nothing would happen, because so little of it actually got into the organ it wanted to get into. In the case of this virus, coronavirus, it likes to get into lungs, and so it has spike proteins that are really good at finding certain types of lung cells. But the more specific it is, the fewer types of cells it can infect, and what that usually means is it can often infect only certain species lungs, not just lungs in general. 
So if we were to, for example, find a coronavirus that looks exactly like, say, a bat coronavirus, but the one difference is it happens to have, let's say, influenza virus spike proteins like H1, that would be like that. There, there's almost nothing else that would do that except human interference. Like that just wouldn't happen. I influenza see. viruses and coronaviruses don't talk to each other. Their genomes are made completely differently, even though they're both RNA. They don't fit into each other's nucleocapsids. Like that, that's so unlikely to happen. It must have happened deliberately. Now, if we said it's kind of similar to what we've already seen in nature, but it sort of mutated a little bit. And then if we looked in the population of bats where these viruses came from, and we said, boy, there's a lot of spike proteins that all mutated in different directions as well. Well, that makes it pretty clear that this virus just happened to be the lucky one that mutated in a way that allowed it to infect humans. So the okay. hallmark of human interference is precision and a lack of evidence for a random process that occurred simultaneously. Okay, that's, that's awesome. That's, that's good to know because I think a lot of, I've heard a lot of people theorize that like it's impossible to know, but there are possibilities, not that it's bulletproof, but that it's, that there are ways to tell about, about the, the DNA of the, of the virus. Ryan, I do want oh, one, one little caveat here, just because again, as, as a scientist, I want to tell you when I'm uncertain of things, <laughs> you could postulate a mechanism where this virus could be very convincingly crafted by man without leaving signs to that effect. Okay. Like that's, that's a real possibility. Um, what's harder to do is to fabricate the evidence we would find in nature, going around and looking at all the other coronaviruses and seeing, you know, were they on their way to infecting humans? Were they pretty close and just need one little extra push? That much, at least we can say, it seems convincing this came naturally, but I, I'm not going to completely discount the possibility that something about it was man influenced. Okay. Ryan, uh, why don't I ask you to tell, uh, tell Nate, how you think or maybe not how you think but uh what the most popular belief right now is of where this came from based on on what you've heard of like of where um the origins of um coronavirus and we'll see if nate agrees with what you think the most popular like what you've heard mostly what have i heard yeah i mean just that it's come out of china i think that's the main thing yeah Anything else beyond that? Any other uh, descriptors? Um, I mean, yeah. I mean, you you named it just that it was it, it you know it was genetically engineered and you know I mean he it's I I think he no, did a great job. I oh. was I was more saying like I've heard that it's like I'm not talking about conspiracy. Oh, sorry, sorry, I'm, sorry. I'm sorry. talking about I'm talking about the other side. Like, what have you heard mainstream wise? is uh is the cause of the virus where it's from I, i've heard like animals oh oh yeah yeah sorry like yeah yeah go ahead uh yeah no from a market in china um mm -hmm. and then it it jumped from a bat that some woman supposedly had eaten <laughs> so I don't, okay okay I don't, again now, i don't know if that's true but nate nate would you say that's more plausible than it being a bioweapon that explanation I think it's more plausible. It is somewhat problematic, but it's better than the idea that someone made it as a weapon. What's problematic about it? Well, so a, a couple things is there isn't really evidence that someone necessarily ate a bat directly uh, or they were eating bat soup at a wet market. I, I think that's <laughs> that's a popular theory that's gone around, but it seems less likely. Um, I mean, what? again, humans get this not by eating each other, but by being near each other. And you know, anyone who's been in an area that happens to be frequented by bats could have caught it just the same way we would catch it by 
walking down the street past someone who has the virus as well. Hmm. I think a lot of the notions that, oh, it came from wet markets specifically, or that from people who were eating weird exotic things, there's there's a little tinge of xenophobia in that. Look at what those weird Chinese people are eating. Yeah, um, It is absolutely true that some of the things they do increase the likelihood of these viruses coming into existence. But I think the evidence that that specific mechanism is responsible is less than the incentive people have to just make it look like the Chinese did something weird and now we're all suffering from it. That's so, what I that's what I wanted you to comment on. Like if there was a, a different potential explanation to that. I mean, it could be that someone ate a bat. Like but I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it could also be, like you said, that that it was transmitted differently. And I wanna say there's even some zoos that have found out that their tigers have tested positive for coronavirus. It's like so like if I was to come in close contact with a tiger, not that I plan on that anytime soon, <laughs> uh, could it jump from the tiger to me? Um, I think that's a question that we probably don't have the science to know right now. Yeah, um, not enough data for that. Quite yeah, yet. not enough data for that. But but I guess what I'm saying is I'm sure there's certain animals if if we were to, to, to do all that science that would have a higher likelihood of transmitting it without necessarily being eaten, but oh, yeah, droplets or through other means, right? Oh, so, yeah. so, so the real answer to this, these origin questions though, of Bill Gates, Elon Musk, a lab, all, all of the origin stories of where the coronavirus came from is like anyone giving you a def definitive, like here's exactly where it came from and how it came from there right now should uh, probably, yeah. should probably be met with a, Maybe, but probably like we don't know that yet. Like, is it fair to just say like the real answer and where this came from right now is yeah, China, but we don't know exactly how. I'm I'm curious what you think about that. I do think it's fair to say it most likely came from bats, based okay. on other coronaviruses in nature that we've been following. And again, people like saying, "Oh, wasn't there a coronavirus research facility in Wuhan?" Yes, because there were a lot of coronaviruses there. Like that's where we build research labs. <laughs> You're the things they study. So I, I think that I don't. I don't just want to say we don't really know. We've got the best evidence that we have at the moment, and very seldom in science do we know for certain what happened. Especially if we're talking about some a specific historical event, like where was the first exposure? You know, what, what which was the bat? What was the bat's name? Who had the coronavirus? Like you know, we can yeah. get really specific here. But I think we're as comfortable as we're often comfortable being in science saying this is likely the answer. That, that it was from a bat in China. It probably, so, I mean, the, the virus itself started out in bats. It may have gone through an intermediate. Um, I think that's a possible but not certain uh, idea that some people have postulated. Um, but this was likely the, the initial ancestor of all the coronavirus that we're seeing in the world right now. Probably came from a bat. Okay. All right. Some Ebola. Yeah. Okay. Oh, Ebola is bat related too. Mm -hmm. And Interesting. then, so another thing is, um, uh, another recent pandemic that technically hasn't gone away yet is HIV, which, you know, we only first realized existed in the eighties or so. Um, it's thought that one came specifically from chimpanzees, um, uh, because it's a bloodborne illness. They thought it came from chimpanzee hunters in Africa. Um, so that's, most of these viruses that have just now come about, especially the biggest ones that tend to grab the headlines, they tend to come from animals because, you know, animals don't go to the doctor when they're sick. You often don't realize there's an outbreak within animals unless you're actively looking for it. And it gives so much opportunity for these viruses to spontaneously mutate and transform. And it's a matter of time before they jump to humans. That's why all the big pandemics have been the swine flu, 
the avian flu, et cetera, et cetera, not the random flu we didn't know where it came from or the human flu, even mm. though that seems like a very defining trait for all of these flus. It, it almost always comes from animals. Hmm. Interesting. All right, we're going to move on to aliens. I'm going to ask Ryan. Ryan, do you believe in aliens and why or why not? That's a great question. I, I that's it. Yeah. I would say I don't have enough evidence to say that they don't exist. I, I believe in the possibility that there's life out there somewhere in the, uh, the cosmos. But at this point, I don't think there's any evidence that, that, that points to that from my cursory, uh, you know, internet searches. <laughs> I'll say, I'll say uh, a quote from the movie Contact. It seems like an awful waste of space. Right. right? <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of my theory. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what to believe about aliens. I actually am more partial to this view in uh, in the sense of like, I, I, I don't have a problem believing in aliens and I don't have a problem believing that like our government has been contacted by aliens or has has observed them and is trying to figure out, you know, how best to keep that under wraps to ensure that like, that everybody doesn't... Uh, panic or whatever i don't know i mean i could see that being a real thing and it wouldn't surprise me if it came out tomorrow that that like our government's known about aliens since like jfk or whatever like that wouldn't that wouldn't be crazy because there's enough people who have like said they believe that you know like or said that, that are that are part of the government that have just kind of been blown off well you why, know? why do you think it's something that we should inherently fear though that's the thing that doesn't make i'm sense not to... afraid of it okay i'm not afraid of it that's no, no, what but, i would say i'm yeah. not afraid of it i think i think i think for, if i was a government leader i may feel the need to uh shield the public from the unknowns that exist in a life form that might be superior to us hmm Right. I mean, couldn't you see the the need to to um to conceal that? No. What do you think, Nate? So oh, I God. think so. Okay, here we go. Right, I was going to say Nate's going to have a lot to say about aliens. I know it. So Stephen Hawking famously said that any interaction between us and a sufficiently advanced society that could travel to us would be a lot like what happened when European settlers first encountered the Native Americans, and it did not go well for the Native oh, Americans. Oh no. Hmm. Um, and I think that about sums it up, is that any, any creature powerful enough to reach us is probably powerful enough to do some really bad things to us, whether they intend to or not. And that the incentive for them to invest the time and energy to travel to the Earth is probably going to be motivated by selfish reasons. Like they didn't, they didn't just come because, you know, they, were, they had a holiday and they wanted to go and celebrate. Like it's, they're, they're looking for something and chances are if they've come to us, we have it. Hmm. So um, I, I will say I don't necessarily believe in aliens in the popular sense that, you know, little green men and UFOs have been frequenting <laughs> Area 51. Um, but if they did exist in that setting, that would be very bad news for us. And there's a few reasons it would be bad news, not only because of the idea that, um, that they could be harmful, but it does sort of give information on the probability of life existing on a given planet. And I want to emphasize what a huge deal that is from the perspective of, you know, astrobiology, if you call it that. So um, before I tumble down this rabbit hole, does anyone have any objections to talking about this for a moment? Because this could get weird fast. Oh, I have no objections, dude. This is this is uh, this is a long form podcast for a reason, people. Okay. If you're still here, 
then you're on this train and you have no <laughs> problem going down this rabbit hole. Okay. So who's familiar with a concept called the Fermi paradox? No. Okay. <laughs> so the Fermi paradox is named after an Italian American physicist. I think it was Enrico Fermi. And essentially his paradox is if you were to just run the numbers on what the likelihood is of one of these planets in this particular system being able to support life, and then compare that to the fact that there is no evidence for life. That's a paradox because based on some very conservative calculations, there should be countless planets, even within our galaxy, that are capable of supporting life. So why isn't anyone out there? Well, there's a few possible solutions to this, many of which involve the concept of what's been described as, quote, the great filter, which is the idea that based on the probability of life spontaneously arising somewhere in the galaxy or the universe at large, being so big, then the only reasonable explanation is that they are allowed to, you know, life is allowed to develop, but it never really gets very far. There's a filter, if you will, that keeps all these, you know, outbreaks, if you will, of life from eventually reaching anything significant. Okay. And there's a few yeah. things that one could say. One might say, okay, what if forming stable eukaryotic cells is an evolutionarily impossible feat? Like the likelihood of it occurring is almost negligible. You can find bacteria, you may even find viruses, but making a eukaryotic cell like a human's is just such an enormous feat. Most people, or rather most plants could never actually reach that point. So that would be the great filter, you know, that particular step in the evolutionary process. Yeah. Or you might say that every couple hundred million years, a star releases a burst of radiation and extinguishes all the life on a planet at any given time. And that really you can't get so advanced in life because eventually one of those events will knock the timer back to zero again. Or you might say every society eventually becomes strong enough to destroy itself before it gets strong enough to travel to another planet. All of these are example of these quote great filters which keep life from ever reaching a point where it could actually communicate with other neighboring societies. So when we look at our world with humanity, if we believe that such a filter exists, and it probably would if there really are that many other places in the universe where life could form, there's only three possibilities. One is, um, actually, one is that there is no filter, and that humans were just the first intelligent life in the entire universe to form. The odds of which would be astronomical, but hey, if it happened, we'd be here. So it's, while it's very unlikely, life existing at all is very unlikely. So it's another unlikely event, okay? And so the reality is, if anyone is going to be making contact with an alien species, it's us going to be reaching out to them. So if that model is true, then there can be no UFOs manned by aliens because we're the most advanced life in all the universe. Um, it seems like a rather, you know, cocky perspective to take, but <laughs> yeah. it would be, it's consistent with the observations that we haven't seen in the other civilized aliens. The other possibility is that this great filter we somehow overcame. Maybe it was the idea that you know, eukaryotic cells are just so challenging to form and you can't form humans or intelligence without eukaryotic cells. So good for us, we were the one in a billion who managed to pull it off. Or maybe we were the one in a billion that managed to be on a planet that was somehow protected from the interstellar activity of all this cosmic radiation that keeps destroying, you know, races before they get powerful enough to reach the point of space travel, okay? That would be a very comforting thought. It means the thing that's keeping life from forming in the universe, we have managed to survive. Mm -hmm. um, the third possibility, as you might guess, is that our time is short and this big filter is still ahead of us. Um, we have not yet reached the point where we can travel to another planet. Um, farthest we've gotten is our own moon, which is practically our backyard. So it's very possible that if something happens in the near future that wipes out all life on Earth, 
that could just be well within the range of progression that life throughout the universe is getting. We always get pretty far along, but never far enough that we can travel to another planet. Um, okay. So here's why it matters if aliens actually exist or not. What if tomorrow we discovered eukaryotic cells on Mars? You know, what if the last thing that the Curiosity rover was able to do was get a sample that showed tiny little cells, okay? That would be the worst news we could possibly get because it means we're not special. It means eukaryotic cells form somewhere else. So that can't be this big filter that keeps life from going on. So if we were counting on that being the thing that made us special, we were wrong. And likely the thing that's gonna wipe out life and, and all the universe is gonna wipe out us as well. Does that make sense? Sure, yeah. Okay. So if we discover like intelligent species coming to earth, it means we're not that special. And the fact that there aren't many other life forms in the universe isn't because we're somehow different from them. It could also just mean that it hasn't been our turn to be wiped out. And for all we know, it was those aliens wiping it out. Maybe this great filter is a super society that goes and eliminates life to keep it from getting out of control whenever it reaches a certain point. That would suck. Okay. Well, I have a question. What if the super society has evolved beyond militarism? Well, that would be nice. Um, that certainly is a and, possibility. And I mean that more from the standpoint of like, what if they've, what if their consciousness has come to a place of, of like, um, peaceful resolution? Like I think of, I can't remember the, um, the movie and this might be really bad, uh, reference, but, um, because it actually was about wiping out humans on earth because of their militarism and desire to kill one another. Um, but then it was changed and it was something, I think Keanu Reeves was like the alien. Uh, I forget the name of the movie, whatever. Um, but, but the point I'm trying to say is like, you could, you have a pretty hopeless uh, like view of, and by the way, I mean, Hawking's one was, it, well, no, not, not Hawking. Uh, um, who was it that, that said that, that you had said, said that? Which one are you talking about, uh, Enrico the, Fermi or? No, 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 the one, uh, the one who had said that if, if we were to come into contact with, with aliens, it would be uh, akin to Europeans and- I, I do believe that was Stephen Hawking. Yes. Was it Hawking? Okay, it was Hawking, okay. So, um, but, but what I guess I'm saying is like, so, so if, that, if that's the case, that, that's a pretty negative view of like an encounter with alien life form. It, it could be positive. It could be that they've evolved to a place to where, um, life is life being sustained is part of their um value system at least i don't know i i i i, I think that's possible oh yeah i mean that, that that's possible i suppose um but i certainly wouldn't make that plan a hope that the <laughs> <are> nice. <laughs> you know so so if if you if you're so so if you were part of the government and you knew this existed you probably wouldn't want this to be public knowledge either then, Nate, because you'd probably want I wouldn't. to plan for it, right? Right. I wouldn't want it to become public knowledge. That would be huge. Dude, this, is, like, moving, I, this is moving quickly from conspiracy theory to, uh, to legitimate conspiracy. For well, me. I mean, it's, so there is plausibility. There is plausibility to the idea. As all conspiracy theorists have to have some degree of plausibility to them. Um, and that's the reason people are asking these questions in the first place. But then yeah. you have to go on and say, okay, what are the odds that aliens just came, flew by, did some weird aerial maneuvers and flashed some lights and went away? Like, what, where does that fall into this grand scheme of our interplanetary you know, foreign policy? Um, th there have also been a lot of speculations out there about what would happen if aliens did encounter humanity. Would it be something like 
Would they come to teach us and show us the way? Would they come to wipe us out? And um, another another uh, quote, I forget who said this one. It might have actually been, oh, I don't even remember at this point. He compared it to like when Marco Polo was traveling through Asia, he probably passed a manhole. He didn't stop and teach the ants about society. He didn't stop and trample the anthill into nothing. He probably just walked past and ignored it. And if there mm. was a super society of aliens that passed our generally unremarkable society on Earth, who's to say we'd even be worth them making the pit stop in the first place? Interesting. And if they yeah. did come, they probably came for a reason. Um, and, and, and what was that reason? And did they achieve it? If aliens really did come, did they really just come to you know, scare some farmers in New Mexico and then disappear. I mean, that seems like a weird waste of their time for an allegedly super advanced society. Are we seeing any evidence that there was this contact? I mean, I don't, I don't know if I can go along with that. I mean, certainly there's people who think that the aliens like built the pyramids and all this random crap. I think that- Hold on, sufficient hold on, the aliens uh -oh. built the pyramids? So there's a lot of people who say, oh, well, <laughs> you know, the Great Pyramid at Giza, you know, looks a lot like the pyramids that, you know, the Mayans built, which looks a lot like things that you find in Southeast Asia. Ooh, that's too big a coincidence. And, and most engineers would just say, no, that's just because that's a very good way to make things stand up for a long period of time. You arrange them in a pyramid. <laughs> you know, it, it doesn't mean that they were taught by the same alien instructors. Oh man, that's great. I oh, mean, uh, everything everything that exists on Earth generally came about through a predictable sequence of enhance of, of advancements. Like we didn't just go straight from Alexander Graham Bell's phone to the iPhone. Like there was a gradual progression. Yeah. Now, if I went back in time and dropped an iPhone in the middle of Times Square in you know the year 1900, people could rightly think that came from a super advanced society because it kind of did. But we haven't found anything. There have been no big technological breakthroughs where we couldn't even see the trail leading up to it. I mean, certainly there have been very fortuitous yeah. discoveries, but everything has been within the expected range of what we thought science could deliver, at least for those of us who work in science. Hmm. I mean, certainly to some people, you may not have any idea how we arrived at you know, flat screen televisions or you know, supercomputers in our pockets, but you know, when you look into it, the, the, the progression is there. It didn't just get dropped in from out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. So what did the aliens do if they came? They didn't seem to give us any particularly unique technology. Um, you could talk about, oh, maybe the, the lizard overlords run the Illuminati or something. But again, there doesn't seem to be much evidence for that basis either. I mean, most of what people have for the evidence of aliens is, you know, shaky photographs and, you know, dubious, possibly doctored evidence in the form of, you know, video record on like, you know, an old cell phone from the early 2000s. I mean, there's not, I mean, in an era where everyone in the world carries a camera in their pocket now, they can often shoot 4K video, like we should have way more evidence than we have. Well, I will say it's interesting what the Pentagon released a few weeks ago. Ryan, you said you saw this too, right? Yes. That was an interesting video, right? I mean, that, that was beyond the scope of, of explanation in any technology that we are aware that we have. Would you say that, Ryan? Yeah, it was interesting because I can't remember how long the video was, but at first I was watching it and it was unimpressive. I was kind of like, really? Why did they release this? And then the last part of it was the most intriguing because yeah. you could hear someone actually talking and, and I forget exactly what they did, but basically they were tracking this, this flying object. And then I think it was the commentary on top of that, that made it like, yo, what the heck was that? <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah. uh, it was definitely interesting for sure. I, I think area 51 and maybe even what the Pentagon released is less evidence of alien life 
and more evidence of our technological advances that the military is making that we don't even know about yet, which may be 10 years beyond what we even think is possible right now, maneuver wise and speed wise and all of that. Because the military typically is that far, if not farther advanced in what they're researching and developing. Is that fair to say, Nate? You think? You think that's? Uh, you think I think I'm you might be giving you might be giving them a little more credit than we deserve. <laughs> okay. All I right. Mean, all right. Certainly, certainly, the military has technology which is not available to civilian researchers and engineers. I, I think I think ten years advanced might be really too generous. Okay. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, certainly, is it possible that they could have something we don't know about? Yeah, I believe that's absolutely possible. Um, but I. I can't comment. I didn't see the specific video that people are talking about. I didn't really think it was worth okay. looking into at the moment. Um, no, if I had known it would be on the quiz today, I would have prepared more. No, 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 no. You're um, fine. You're fine. You're fine. So it, it's hard to say. Like, is that within, based on where we are, what's what's common knowledge in society? Is that a reasonable jump that something could have been going on in the background to produce this? Um, that is a question that might be answered by a person who's able to analyze that video and who knows where we stand right now with our capabilities and engineering for these types of aircrafts. Um, I don't really want to opine on that. Yeah. Myself, so. Do you do you think that's a general explanation for just the hype of Area 51, though, that it's probably a test facility for research and development of new technology and people see that as alien? I mean, is I, that is that a fair is that is that a more believable likelihood than alien spaceships that we either have and we're testing out or that we either or, or that we um or that aliens like to visit that particular part of Nevada. I don't know. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, I mean, the Silicon Valley is an area of great technology advancements, but no one's no one's waving little signs with little green men and threatening to storm like you know Fresno, California. I mean, it's there's yeah. something specific about Area 51 that's come mostly from urban legend passed down throughout the years. Like it's it became kind of a self fulfilling prophecy. People were looking and paying attention to this area. They're taking more photos of things they don't understand in the sky, and it's. It, it just it just sort of got rolling because the community decided collectively this is where they're going to focus on trying to find aliens that the government is hiding from us mm -hmm. and it, it can be it can be strange to predict why society is obsessed with that specific region but I mean, I mean with the advent of the internet we can see how people take you know very strange concepts and spin them in all sorts of directions you know yeah. like i don't know just just pick your recent meme of choice why did that particular frame from that tv show suddenly become all over the internet i don't know someone just decided it was and everyone got on board <laughs> yeah i also think there's an interesting reality that like and i've seen this in like the religious community too like what you look for you'll find mm. like if you're looking long enough for a particular thing i don't know okay let's put it this way it's weird that like when you get a certain car a new vehicle like i never noticed how many ford focuses were on the road until i started driving a ford focus like they right. were always on the road but now i have a reference point and i'm looking for it and um lights were always in the sky but you weren't looking for them as if they were aliens like i, exactly. I don't know i mean i is there some psychology behind that like that like Oh, absolutely. I don't know, the I mean, idea of like what you look for, you'll find. I don't know if that's like a... That's kind of confirmation bias. Yeah, ways. confirmation bias. Okay, okay. I mean, yeah, I, I just think, I think it's it's interesting that I've seen that in my own life because it's an interp it's a way of interpreting like what I've seen as like 
I have to sometimes go back and be like, but was I looking for that? Because if I was really actively looking for that, I have to be a little bit more suspicious of of that, like I don't, I don't know, reach. Yeah. of the conclusions I'm reaching in seeing that or experiencing that yeah. or having And, and we've, we've touched on that theme a lot during this talk is that yeah. people tend to find the things they're looking for and they're usually looking for them with some motivation behind it. Um, a related concept that applies here is pareidolia. Uh, pareidolia is the idea that when you're looking at a seemingly random arrangement of information, you process it in meaningful ways. And that's what we see when people claim to see the image of the Virgin Mary on a piece of toast or something like that. <laughs> Or you know, even something as harmless as like seeing the man on the moon or looking at a constellation and seeing a crab or a dragon or something like that. Our brains are hardwired to find patterns and assign explanations. And that's true even when there are no patterns and there is no explanation hmm, for it. Interesting. Our brains are hardwired to find patterns and make explanations. Interesting. So and it's useful. Does that, does that lend, it's useful most of the time. Would you say that's, that's, that basic understanding of what the brain's function is, what you just said, is a driving force in conspiracy theories and why people are Absolutely. so quick to, to buy into conspiracy theories then. Absolutely. Interesting. Ryan, you've been quiet for a while. You got anything to, to add before we check aliens off the, off the box? No, I, I love that. Yeah, that he's saying, I think the pattern thing is, is, I've had that same experience. You know, you buy a new vehicle or whatever it is. It's you know, eleven eleven on a clock. You see that everywhere. So I think yeah. that, uh, and I and I think right now too, we are we're fish in water right now with with COVID nineteen and everything. So I think that's also contributing to, you know, specifically that conspiracy theory is like we're just so deeply embedded in all this everything, and so of course we're going to see these connections. We're going to see these patterns, or we're going to interpret them as such. So I think that that's that's an awesome mm. point there. All right, so let's uh, let's come to the end here and talk a little bit about what people should do, um, and maybe even what we should collectively do. I do think we talked a little bit about this earlier about um, you know your trusted sources being legitimately trusted sources that there's ways of finding that kind of stuff out. But one of the things I think is interesting here is that like any action against a conspiracy theory often like lends to its credibility almost like it's mm -hmm. weird how that it's weird how that turn works like yeah, most it's, people it's most people effect. most people who i saw mm -hmm. that like posted pandemic were like hurry up and watch this before it's taken down again <laughs> as if like the fact that it was taken down was a reason that it was like a reason of validity it had to have been something or they wouldn't have yes bothered. if they're taking it down that it legitimizes it. Yeah. Yes, it legitimizes it, which is so infuriating because you're like, but it was taken down because it's nonsense or it's false or it's, right. you know. Copyright infringement as well. Oh, copyright right. infringement could be a, a reason that it was taken down. Exactly. So like. Well, it's almost um, like saying, oh, you know, these apples were recalled. They must want them back because they're so tasty, not because they're tainted with like, you know, E. coli or something. <laughs> I mean. Yeah, that's like, an interesting we don't take things away from people just because it's good for them to be exposed to it. Usually it's the opposite. Usually. Now I do think in a free speech society, we have some legitimate conversations that, and, and this is a whole nother podcast that I'm thinking about doing of like the intersection of Liberty and communal responsibility because, yeah. because like I can go out and drive my car right now, but I can only drive a certain speed because of communal a responsibility to my community of 
and fellow human of, uh, of safety. And um, I, I think, you know, I, I was in the post office the other day, uh, checking the church mail. That's the only real reason I'm, I'm there. And, uh, and I only do it like once a month, but I, and, and they had changed like everything since the last time I had checked it. So like big sign on the door must wear a mask. Everybody's got to stay six feet apart. You walk in, it's like, everybody's anxiously trying to stay six feet apart, looking at other people as if like, I don't hate you, but don't come close to me. You know, and that's like the vibe of the room. That's the vibe everywhere you go nowadays, it seems like, but, um, I've got my mask on, checking the mail. I go over by the trash can. I'm going through it. And, and a person walks in, no mask. And this person's like, got to be 60s or 70s. No mask. Just walks in, standing tall, confident, you know, blows right past somebody way closer than six feet. And you can tell that person is kind of like put off by that. Checks their mailbox, comes over to the trash can where I'm at, stands like right next to me. Like we're talking like, probably a foot away from my face throws some of their junk mail in the trash and then just looks at me and goes Psh, and then walks out like like they're upset that I'm wearing a mask or like upset just by the whole s situation and then storms out and it's like okay bud like you're not taking this seriously and that has consequences on other people and what's what was shocking about that for me was like you're in the risk category like you're right. the one like I'm wearing this mask for you. Like, you know what I mean? Like I'm wearing this mask for anybody I come in contact with, but at the same time, like you would seem to be one of those that I would be more concerned about if I was asymptomatic, but it's like, I don't know when I think about like, what do we do when it comes to freedom and Liberty versus health and safety? It's, it's hard to get by in, in a culture that is so, um, so concerned with freedoms and liberties and to apply this to conspiracy theories it's hard to shut down a conspiracy theory by censoring it because you might actually give it more power but it's also hard to shut down a conspiracy theory by censoring it because we have a mechanism of free speech that allows someone to have a bad idea and share it yet at the same time you can't say fire in a movie theater which is you know, that's not a freedom you have. So if, if, if what they're saying is potentially leading people to a panic or to, um, to harm themselves unnecessarily, that line just is really blurry is what I'm saying. And I think it deserves right. some exploration and applied to conspiracy theories. There's definitely a lot of intersections. Yeah, that's, Oh, that's a whole, that's a whole talk in itself. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, and I, well, I, I did kind of touch on this, I think, when we were doing our podcast about, you know, health, and I did touch a little did. bit on misinformation. You, did. you said and, that was actually one of the top three things we needed to, uh, what was it? It was like uh, cigarettes and, and that and something else. But it's like, I was expecting like premium costs and all these other things. But it was like, no, like misinformation is one of the biggest issues in, in, in it. Yeah, it is. And, and I, and this is a very unpopular belief, but I believe people should be held accountable at times with civil and criminal charges when they give information that's knowingly false to serve their own ends that causes harm to people. Like if someone says, don't take this medicine, it will kill you. A person doesn't take the medicine and they die from not taking their medicine. Like they killed that person. Like uh, that, that's my perspective on it. Hmm. If someone tells a parent, like, don't give your kid the measles vaccine and then they get, you know, 
SSPE or they have complications during acute measles and they die, the person who gave that misinformation directly led to the death of that child and they should be held responsible for it. And so in our I country, realized, is there any mechanism for holding that person accountable? Oh, you can sue anyone for anything. That's the beauty. I mean, God bless the USA. We can sue anyone. If yeah. <laughs> um, but A, we don't. And B, if we do, it's going to be a civil case. There's nothing, yeah. there's nothing that yeah. criminalizes that sort of activity. Um, okay. but, but as you pointed out, we also can't necessarily target the message itself because you know, that leads to what's been called the Streisand effect. The more you try and hide or cover something up, the more people will actually spread it and consume it. Mm. Um, famously named after Barbara Streisand, who tried to get a picture of her Malibu, California home taken off the internet, and now it became the most popular searched image on that particular year. Anyway. I did not know the origin of that. That's hilarious. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> she tried um, to get an image taken down from the internet, and it became yeah. the most popularly searched. During that period. Actually, if you want to see it, just, just look exactly. at the Wikipedia page for Streisand Effect. It's the featured picture on that page. Of course it is. Wow, <laughs> interesting. So the point is, we've tried targeting the message and that doesn't work. And the problem isn't the message, the problem is the people who spread it maliciously. These are not the ones who are genuinely concerned and want information. These are not the ones calling for transparency or calling for investigation. I'm talking about the ones who know what they're saying is a lie and are spreading it for personal gain at the expense of someone else. Those people are criminals in my book. Mm. Mm. Is it possible that you can be so delusional to not literally believe? I mean, how could you prove that someone knew something was a lie? Because there like, are delusional people, right? Like that don't. Oh, oh yes, there are. <laughs> well, I, I guess what I'm saying is like, if it was going to come to criminality, like it could be that someone legitimately believes this and they are the, the, the backbone of it, but that it's not, it's not malicious in the sense that they they really believe it. Like, does that make sense? Like, it does. Yeah, and and that's always the hard thing about jurisprudence is trying to prove you know animus nocendi. What's the actual will for harm here? Um, I would say, if someone is clearly profiting from a false claim, mm, yeah, and if there's evidence they should have known better and just chose not to pay attention. So Judy Mikovits, okay, the pandemic lady, she actually has a PhD in biology. She knows we have vaccines against RNA viruses, and she knows there's no coronavirus in the flu shot. By nature of her education and her experience, I am aware that she knew she was speaking falsehoods when she spoke to the contrary. Mm. So for situations like that, it seems more cut and dry. When someone has previously stated something to be recognized to them as true, you know, she, she passed her microbiology classes, clearly she knows what an RNA virus is. She knows that measles is an RNA virus and we vaccinate for that. She knows influenza is an RNA virus and we vaccinate for that and all the others on that lengthy list. I, I think that there is often a trail of information that you can use to prove that someone is talking out of both sides of their mouth when it convenes yeah. that. Yeah. Ryan, what, what about you? What do you think are some things we can do action-wise to, to guard against conspiracy theories? Yeah, that's a tough one. I, I think... And, and I mean, I mean we, we joke about this and we've had some good conversation, but I think we're talking about it when we start to see how it impacts people's behavior in a public health crisis. That's definitely when it gets into a, a situation that, that's difficult. I, I don't, I think like anything <clears throat> that I've experienced is you're not going to convince anyone via social media for sure. They're just going to double down. I think if you have a relationship with someone that you could have some influence. So whether it's, you know, we're specifically talking about 
the coronavirus right now. It could be anything. I think that's where you can have some inroads into trying to 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 have an influence on someone and and maybe you know ask questions and see where they're coming from and why they've landed on certain conclusions. I, that's been my experience. You know, um, when it comes to anything, you're not you're not going to change someone's mind. Yeah. Uh, in fact, if you 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 know, like we talked about, if you identify a particular area, it's likely they're just going to double down on that particular um, belief system, you know? So I think that, uh, you know, I try to, if I do put something out on social media, I try to put out something that's rather benign, you know, for, for maybe people that lurk in the, in the shadows that are just trying to get some more information. But for those that I've already landed on a particular stance, I don't, I don't necessarily try to, to, to come at them because it's going to take, I think the other thing too is I've thought about this is most of us, you know, in a general sense, process all of this through our own experience, you know, and so similar to way, ways I've shifted theologically or, or any other kind of presupposition without some type of experience to attach to that, people are, are going to tend to to continue to to think and behave in ways that sort of align with what we talked about, kind of their their preconceived notions and bias, you know, so it's a tough one, man, for sure. <laughs> No, that's good. I think, I think that's, yeah, that's the, that's the hard part too, is like, I mean, a, a lot of people who are disregarding this as not a big deal fall into a certain camp because it seems like their tribe is telling them this is how you should respond. And it can just become very easy to write off that whole tribe, I guess, but it's like, that's not good. And that doesn't mean everything that tribe says is wrong. It just means like, it's hard because people are tribal and there's, there's, there's health to that. There's health in having a tribe and having a community that you connect to and you bond with and that shares the same values as you. But it can also be bad when that community becomes your trusted source, but doesn't have your best interests in mind. And so I think it's also a matter of like being, being aware that we are tribal like we have, you have tribalistic tendencies, no matter how woke or evolved you think you are, you have a tribe and that tribe tends to be a trusted resource in your life and does not get sent through the filter the way other tribes get sent through the filter and other ideas get sent through the filter. The ideas that spring forth out of your particular group don't get the same filter as others. And so how do you ensure that you take the time to filter things within your own tribe, the way you would filter things from the outside, I think is, is really important too. in all of this, like, and, and, and ensuring that you have a wider base of information because so much of that information is typically coming from one source or, you know, your tribe or, or, or whatever. So. I also think too, I thought about the, the further we get into this, you know, it's difficult to have some type of perspective. Like for me personally, when it first happened, it's like, this is a pandemic, it's unprecedented. And you, for me, at least in the beginning, I was acutely aware of that reality. But now so many months in, and we keep saying this terminology, like the new normal, you, you lack that self-awareness to realize life right now, as I know it, is so completely different than it was two months ago, three months ago. And that's true for me and it's true for everyone else. And we're scared and, and we're all dealing with the uncertainty. And so I think some sense of 
like compassion on ourselves as well as other people, whether they're part of our tribe or not, is really, I'm, I'm aiming to try and maintain that type of perspective because the longer we're into this, it's more and more difficult for me to do that. And it's easy to just be, you know, accusatory and think that person is a fool, you know, which there might be yeah. some validity to that, but also like remind myself that like they're scared and the impact yeah. of this is so tremendous and it's so complex. Mm -hmm. And like, I don't know, just holding it in light of that can be somewhat helpful to be a little bit more, you know, to, to speak truth, but also to be compassionate. I don't know. To kind of balance that is, is no, a difficult I think, thing. I think that's really important that you ha recognizing that this is a collective grief and yeah. like everyone's grieving. And if their way of grieving is, you know, is that that's not that it's healthy. That's not that it's okay, but we should respond to someone in grief, um, you know, with, with an element of compassion and understanding and a desire to be empathetic for that. And I, I think that's, that's important. That doesn't change the fact that if someone's spreading misinformation right. or, or, or has that, 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 that doesn't need to also be part of the process. But I do think today with this particular, um, you know, the conspiracy theories related to coronavirus, like we definitely have to recognize that a lot of people that are grabbing hold of those feel like the world's out of control mm -hmm. and this is something that's giving them control feel like you know they're 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 in fear uh and uh and this gives them an explanation that makes them less fearful yeah um or or maybe even increases their fear but fits fits the places that their fear already were before you know that's what's so fascinating is a lot of people they're like we have we've said already that already had conspiracy theories and had already placed their fear against 5g or against you know fill in the blank right they've been able to take this new thing that they're afraid of and just lay it over that and in essence it becomes this bucket that holds their fear instead of them having to process it and work through it and um and i think there's an element of compassion needed for those people because they're going through a process that's really hard i mean and we all are through this um so i i, I think that's important right and i think that's a really really good point uh as we move forward all right do you guys think we did it do you think we did enough on conspiracy theory anything any final words any any last uh last parting shots here I think um we, i think we nailed I, it no <laughs> yeah no, i mean just it, it, i took entire classes on this in my master so no we didn't nail it but we're, we're on the way <laughs> good intro i'm joking no hold but, on uh, <laughs> uh, oh so, so we're, we're doing more episodes on conspiracies then is that what i'm hearing <laughs> a whole series hold on maybe this isn't a beyond boundaries podcast maybe this is a spin-off podcast no i'm just kidding no not at all oh, we'll, yeah, do, we'll no. do more we'll do more episodes on conspiracy <laughs> theories this can be part one i'm fine with that I'm good with uh, that. If there's I, more, I, if there's more I only, I only have so much emotional reserve, and we're we're getting it. Like every time, I'm, I'm like this close to losing it. You oh, can't man. see me, but my fingers are really close to you. When anyway. I put flat, when I put flat Earth on, Nate almost lost. Uh, it. I, just, I, I've, I've kept it inside a lot now, it's, and it's, it's been tough because this is the big thing about it too. Is whenever one of my friends posts something about how you know we're depopulating the world through vaccines or doctors are lying on death certificates, I I cannot resist sending them an e-message and saying, just so we're clear, you think that I specifically am mm. lying about the condition, that mm. I'm the one who's deliberately giving people poison through shots, and that I'm lying on my documentation. Is that correct? And I said, well, not you, just, you know, doctors. I'm like, mm. yeah, what do you think I am? 
like, well, not you, other doctors. Oh, I see, my colleagues or my professors or the people I trained. Uh, well, you know, and they start to realize we're not a faceless evil entity. Mm. And sometimes they realize what they're doing and they take it down. Other times they don't. And that that is not good for our friendship, to say the least. Yeah. So yeah, that's all important. of this stuff really hits home because like I am the person that gets accused of conspiracy theories. Yeah, that's important because I don't, Ryan, I don't know about you, but I don't, I don't know that I've ever felt that feeling of like it being personal to me. Yeah, no, I mean, first of all, I love, I love the way that you've, at least in the example you gave, you've handled that because to me, like you brought it into that relational context. Yes. And if the person values the relationship they have with you, one, like you said, it, it, it gives it a name and a face. And I think that that's huge. I think that if you're going to change someone's mind, it has to happen that way. So I think, you know, personally, I, you know, having a daughter diagnosed with autism and then being in, um, you know, the world of autism for the last 10 years and things like that. I mean, I, I don't take anything personally per se, but I think the conversations that around vaccinations and different things like that, I've experienced that in different ways and, um, and just how some of those dots can connect and things like that. And mm -hmm. I've, I've had to, navigate conversations delicately with people yeah. and, and things like that as a result of that, because, you know, obviously some people have very strong opinions in regard to that. So I, I, I haven't felt a direct impact like you're giving the example of Nate, but yeah, Justin, mm -hmm. I've, I've had some of those, sure. um, yeah. you know, kind of uh, experiences where especially people would say certain things and, you know, thinking like my daughter has autism like her you know anyway it, you know it, it's definitely i've personalized it in some ways i guess but not felt like a a very specific attack yeah um i will say if there's one thing i could use to wrap up the entirety of how to approach a conspiracy theorist like if i was to distill everything all the all the approaches i take into three things it's that when people believe in something in a way that actually changes their behavior it happens through one of just three ways it can change their degree of personal agency, their perceived societal norms, or their interventional attitude. So what I mean is it has to either be something related to their degree of either perceived control or their ability to take on a particular measure, like am I capable of wearing a mask in a pandemic in the first place? It's in the form of their perceived norms, what are the people in my, my in-group doing, and their attitude for the actual intervention itself. Like, Do I honestly believe that there is a reason why you know, a mask, for example, can be harmful. And only the third of those has anything to do with factual information. Like giving someone facts and info can make a difference if the reason is a genuine lack of understanding for how these things work. But understanding which of those three buckets is the reason is the only way I've ever been able to change someone's mind on these things. Um, mm. and, and, and like you mentioned, Ryan, like the reason I chose that approach for most of my friends is that they tend to fall into the category of number two, perceived norms. And those can be injunctive norms, meaning what people tell them to do, or descriptive norms, what they're actually doing. I like to demonstrate for them the descriptive norms by saying, hey, I'm the guy who actually does this. And I like to also emphasize like, hey, you know, within my expertise, this is what we all agree is the right thing to do. Hmm. And there are some people who have never heard that message. They're being told by, you know, their hippie groups that no, if they take the flu shot, then they'll instantly get cancer or something. Like there, it, it is all about coming at this three-pronged approach by offering a perspective that they may not be able to find in their echo chamber. Mm. So that's that's my last parting shot on that. I love it. That, that, that's that's excellent. That's an excellent final word. Hey guys, thank you for being on. Thank you for uh, talking conspiracy theories for a couple hours. <laughs> sure thing.
Yeah, it was fun. It was good times. Thanks for having me, Justin. Yeah, of course. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the podcast. Huge thanks to Nathan McConkey and Ryan Moran for joining me on the podcast today and talking conspiracy theories. As always, you can find the show notes and description for this podcast in the notes. Uh, also, I have a Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash beyond boundaries podcast. If you're able to support the show financially, that would be awesome. You can just give like even a dollar a month like that would make a huge difference. Uh, any amount makes a huge difference. You can also support the show in other ways, though. If finances aren't a way that you can support the show, you can support by subscribing to the podcast rating the podcast, reviewing it, like all that kind of stuff, sharing it even with your friends. If this, if this was helpful to you, a conversation about conspiracy theories and you want to share that with your friends, please go share it. Getting the word out makes a huge difference. And I'm always thankful when I see other people sharing this with their friend networks and uh, getting the word out there. May you go and live a life that is beyond boundaries, giving others love, exploring new ideas and championing belonging.